Okay. Good morning, everybody, um, and welcome to the 45th meeting of the Economy Committee. Um, all members will be attending this morning's meeting via video conference, and could I just ask all members who are on Saturday to mute their mics, please? Um, our witnesses for today's briefing will also be attending via um, video conference. The meeting will be broadcast live, and a recording will be made available. Hang on. Committee's web pages on the assembly website. Um, so, could I just ask all members who are online to, to mute their mics, please? So, just to remind other members to, to uh, mute their devices by pushing uh, it. There's somebody talking there. So, item number one, then. Um, apologies. I don't think we have any apologies. None, none that we're aware of, Chair. Okay. So moving on then to item number two, which mm. is our draft minutes. Um, there is a copy of the draft minutes from the meeting held no, on no, the 16th know. of December at page five of your packs. So if um, members are content that those are an accurate reflection of the meeting. Great. Thank you. Okay, so moving on then to item number three, which is chair's business. Um, at 3.1 of your pack, page 12, there are documents for the OCN and I research launch on Wednesday the 27th of January. The report is entitled to higher skills, ambition, skills for growth and social inclusion. According to the report by 2030, the North may have the fourth highest proportion of low qualified people out of the 16 OECD comparators. The report is promoting three foundations for success, to promote and fund a higher ambition for skills um, for economic growth and social inclusion, promote alignment across all phases of education to meet learner, industry and community needs and to promote collaboration for change. Um, the committee has already agreed that I will sit on a panel to discuss the skills um, at the launch of the report, which is on the 27th of January, and then the next day is our um, micro-inquiry on skills on the Thursday, the 28th of January. So it's for members to note, unless um, there's any comments anybody wants to make. Great. Thank you. So moving on to 3.2 then, at page 4 of Table Packs, um, there is a, a blog piece from Argos blog um, regarding steel imports into the North carrying 25% um, duties post-Brexit. So if we could perhaps ask the, the department for some clarity around that, that issue um, and any solutions that there is uh, being put forward in relation to it. Yep, Chair, sure. if members are happy enough, we'll go ahead. Great, yeah. Thank you. 3.3 um, then. The executive has declined to consider a paper from the Minister for Finance in respect of Budget 21-22. The um, budget paper has been submitted again for the executive meeting scheduled for the 12th of January. Understood that further delay may have consequences for the length of the related public consultation and statutory committee's opportunity to scrutinise the budget effectively. The Finance Minister has agreed to attend the Committee for Finance today in order to discuss the impact of the delay. Um, members may wish to um, view the relevant public proceedings in relation to that this afternoon, um, which is from 2 p.m. on the Assembly's live stream. Chair, we didn't get an update, so we don't we don't know if it was discussed yesterday. I, I hadn't heard anything more than that, uh, and that was the last update we'd had from the Finance Committee. So that's kind of what we're operating on. Okay. Um, thanks for that, Peter. Um, and then just at a final point, members may have seen the. The letter reported um, from retailers to the the um, Chancellor last night in relation to um, issues to do with the grace period. Um, so members were agreed that we would write to Michael Gove yeah. um, 
highlighting the need for those grace periods to be utilised effectively and for the, the TSS to be properly resourced to ensure that it's helping um, businesses effectively because obviously the short time that they had to prepare between the um, agreement being agreed at the end of or the 24th of December and yeah. um, the uh, TCA coming into effect on the 31st has, has had implications and businesses in Britain in particular that aren't prepared for it. So I think it's really important that that, that support is put in place. Chair, we'll go ahead. Members are content then. Chair, just on that, this retail roundtable group has been mentioned. Uh, have we any more details on that? No. Is there, um, was there any specifics on, on that particular one? Is this the thing to do with uh, essential retail and click and collect? And stuff? Yeah, yeah. No, haven't had any details through on that. Just um, what, this, what there's been on the media, but we can dig in and find out. Okay. Uh, members are content. We, we'll, because you, you know who it's going to be anyway. We know that the, the likely people that'll be on that. We we'll go and find out what exactly is happening with it. Right. Thank you, Chair. If I could just come in on that as well. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Just want to echo your con uh, the concerns raised last night. To the, um, I think this does need to be flagged up. We met with these um, representatives from Henderson's group and from Linus Foods and from Musgrave yesterday. I think other parties have done the same, and the concerns that they are raising are extremely, extremely worrying. This is not just contrary to popular opinion about avocados and some high end desirable uh, products, but non essential ones. These are actual products that are mainstream products that. If this carries on, aren't going to end up in our shelves, and the ones that are are going to end up at a much higher cost to the ultimate consumer. So I think an extension of at least nine months, potentially a year, to get this sorted out, and also to flag it up. We're hearing that it's not just, it's not here specifically because businesses here mm. have prepared. It's in GB where they're not aware of the processes and even or the, even the access to the support, the financial support they can get for their veterinary inspections, etc. So all this needs to be flagged up. It's just happened far too quickly. And the cost of freight as well, it's a perfect storm heading in because of the, the lack of shipping containers. Conta um, transport has increased sixfold in terms of shipping containers into, into Northern Ireland. And a lot of um, haulage firms are now saying they don't want to do GB runs because it's not worth their while because of the amount of time they're spending. So again, costs are going to go up. So we're, we're only starting to see this trickle effect. But when it really kicks in, it's going to be yeah. hugely impacting. So uh, I totally agree, no, and I think I, I we think need some action we, we very quickly. We'll be looking to get um, some representatives in to talk to us about the impact over the yeah, next sure. couple of we, weeks. We have, um, issues have, hey, have some extra involved. capacity last week. We've had a, a briefing Morning. department has dropped, so we have extra capacity next week, and I'm, okay. I'm fairly sure there are a number of stakeholders who would be very helpful to have in. So we we look at doing that and getting somebody in for next week. Okay. All right, thank you. Thank you. Um, so moving on then to item number four is our departmental briefing on the Assured Skills Academy. There's a clerk's memo at page 15 of your packs. There's a written briefing from the department in relation to the employer skills programmes at page 20. Um, the briefing is part of our preparation for the skills strategy micro-inquiry. So if I could ask for um, Graham Wilkinson, um, Anne Williamson and Dylan Byrne to be brought into the spotlight please. Okay. So I might hand over to yourself um, and to make a, an initial statement and then we'll open it up to, to members for questions. Thank you, Chair, and good morning, everyone. Uh, and thank you, Dave, for the opportunity uh, to provide you with a briefing on this Your Skills uh, programme. As you say, Chair, I'm joined today by Anne Williamson, who leads the management of a number of our skilled programmes. <laughs> uh, as well as Dylan Byrne, who has first-hand experience 
of the program and we'll be able to provide members with a bit of a flavour uh, of what it's like to participate on one of our academies. Uh, we've already provided uh, members with a written briefing and I'm sure you will have a number of questions for us so I will keep my introductory comments brief uh, before handing over to Dylan to provide his perspective in terms of the Shared Skills uh, Academy that he uh, attended. As you'll see from the, the briefing pack, the Shared Skills Academies are a pre-employment training programme that we have developed in post-working relationship with Invest and AMI. Typically, uh, we work with foreign direct investment companies as well as expanding uh, global businesses who have identified employment opportunities. Uh, the programme provides industry-focused training that equips participants uh, with the transferable skills that they need uh, to uh, compete for, for these jobs. In short, it's really about delivering training for individuals in, in the skills that companies are looking for, leading to a guaranteed job interview for those who successfully complete uh, the course. And then we just have to draw out a number of the, the key features of the programme for, for members. Firstly, it's that close working relationship that we have with the colleges, universities, uh, and those of employers who use the Assured Skills Academies to develop the course content. Uh, and from my perspective, that is really important uh, to ensure that we have a shared understanding of, of the skills that the particular company is looking for. Uh, it's also useful for the education providers at the same time, uh, so they have an appreciation of the latest developments in the marketplace. Secondly, I would say that the Academy model is designed to be a short, sharp intervention. So typically a course lasts for anywhere between six to eight weeks. Uh, so it is a relatively short investment in an individual's time uh, to get a job in, in one of the, the employing companies. So from my perspective, I think it's a rather attractive option for the individuals who decide to apply to the academies. Uh, the model is also designed to be versatile and we have used it to upskill individuals in areas such as data analytics, financial services, business consultancy, software development and cyber security. So a very wide range uh, of uh, subjects that we have used it for in terms of the various model. It's also open to anyone over the age of 18 and is targeted to those who are either unemployed, underemployed, or indeed for those who are seeking a, a change in, in career. You'll also see from uh, the briefing we provided that the, the programme is fully funded uh, by the department, uh, and in doing so, we pay for the cost of the course design, cost of delivery, as well as the recruitment and assessment of the candidates who apply for the course. Uh, for those participants who undertake the programme, uh, they are entitled to a weekly allowance of £150. Uh, travel expenses are uh, where it's applicable. We also assist uh, with the childcare costs. I also think it's important to say that our focus is very much on the individuals and providing them with, with the skills that, that they need. Uh, none of the funding that we use goes directly to, to the companies. It's for the delivery of the training as I've as just outlined. In terms of the performance of the programme, certainly well, we have been very pleased uh, with its performance since, uh, since its inception, uh, with on average about 80% of participants uh, securing employment. So that's a very high uh, success rate, and as I say, we'd be very pleased uh, with this. 
And I think that success is probably down to two main factors. And firstly, it's the caliber of, of the individuals that we have on our courses. Uh, certainly the uh, employers and the companies that we have engaged with have been uh, really impressed with the caliber of, of the individuals. And that has been an important uh, success factor. Uh, and also secondly, the point that I was making earlier on about the close working relationships between the education providers uh, and the various companies, I think that has been a really important element to why the academies has been such a, a successful uh, model. You also see that we have delivered a number of uh, collaborative academies. So uh, this was a, a, a new initiative where a, a group of companies where they had to identify a, a number of vacancies uh, with similar skills came together uh, to deliver uh, an academy on, on, on a various range of areas such as manufacturing, engineering, uh, and welding, just to mention a, a few. And certainly, uh, since we started, the demand for the programme has increased quite significantly. In the first year of the programme, uh, there were nine academies, that was back in 2014. Uh, and in the last two years, we delivered 21 uh, different academies. So it has grown quite significantly uh, over the years. Uh, I suppose this year has been very, very different to, to, to others, as you might expect. Uh, but we have delivered 10 academies uh, this year. We have six underway. Uh, and a further three uh, plans will be launched in, in February and March. But this year has been very, very challenging, and we've had to move our academies fully online. Uh, and that was done in a, in a fairly quick order of time. And uh, my thanks to everybody involved in that process. Uh, I think certainly the employers uh, have been very impressed by the academy model, can still deliver using that online uh, way that, that we have, have implemented. So that has been a, a great success. And, to, to Anne and the rest of the team for, for doing so. Maybe, Chair, if I could just mention two of our other uh, skills programmes very briefly. Uh, they are Skills Focus and Innovate Us. Uh, and again, both of those programmes are, are delivered uh, through the local colleges. Uh, and it's our primary support for small businesses in terms of helping them uh, to upskill uh, their workforce. The Skills Focus programme is aimed at companies who have fewer than 250 employees. Uh, and want to improve the skill set of their workforce. Courses are available at level two uh, and above. Uh, and there are a wide range of subject areas such as digital marketing, health and social care, as well as leadership and management. So as you can see, there's a very wide range of subjects that are, are available. Uh, as well as that, we have Innovate Us, uh, which offers free training to small businesses with fewer than 50 employees. Uh, and help them to acquire the skills that are necessary in relation to innovative uh, projects. It delivers 10 to 60 hours of tailored innovation training to help those businesses on whether it's a new product, a new service, or just to adapt into their processes. Um, during this financial year, again, has been very, very different, and we have adapted our programs to make them much more accessible uh, to companies. We have removed the 25% employer contribution and we've extended the number of projects uh, that companies can, can apply for. And we've invested just over £2 million in both skills focus uh, and then us. And we've been happy with uh, the level of uptake with 1,500 enrollments in skills focus. And then us has supported 235 companies to complete 241 uh, projects. And certainly that's been our experience where companies over the last nine months have really taken the opportunity to, to look at innovative projects 
um, particularly trying to help them to move to an online uh, way of marketing and selling their, their products. Uh, and that's happened in a very short order of time. And I think both NBS and Skills Focus have been quite instrumental in, in helping us uh, to achieve that. So hopefully, Chair, that's given you a very uh, brief uh, overview of, of the various programmes that, that we have. Uh, but I was very keen for you to hear from a uh, course participant to give you a bit more insight as to, to what it's like to actually uh, be involved in, in one of our Assured Skills Academies uh, and what works well. So if I may, I would like to hand over to, to Dylan uh, just to provide his perspective. Uh, and again, we're more than happy to, to take questions uh, from, from members. Um, I can pass over to you now. <coughs> Thank you, Graham, and good morning, everyone. Uh, first, I just want to extend my thanks uh, for the great opportunity of speaking to you this morning um, on this topic, and I welcome any questions, of course, throughout. Uh, so, firstly, by way of introduction, as Graham mentioned, my name is Dylan Byrne. I'm currently 24 years old and working as an associate at Finch Limited. My role has evolved throughout the two years I've been involved with the company into a front office support and process improvement role. Currently, I'm working for a Tier 1 investment bank based in New York, um, having completed the academy in 2018. Uh, this was completed in Belfast, and I can assure you it feels like many moons ago now. Prior to this, I achieved a Tier 1 in my business degree from Queen's. Although I did complete a year's placement in industry working for used cars and I, I felt university um, gave me the skills needed to progress my career in other areas. Having said this, I then decided to travel to East Coast of America with ultimate career goal of establishing myself in the consulting field when I arrived home in Northern Ireland, but without a, a clear map of how this is going to be achieved. Thankfully, I heard about Century and the accounting process through a fellow Queen's graduate. I then applied one of my travels and a few days after flying home, albeit was <coughs> I was fortunate enough to be offered an interview which I was successful in taking place in the next financial services academy. The academy itself was a six-week program for us based at Belfast Metropolitan College and Ulster University, during which we took part in various exercises and sessions to build our skill sets in all senses. This ranged from presentation delivery, know your client, financial crime and Microsoft Excel lessons with various competent and experienced individuals in their phase taking the sessions. The academy itself helped to establish us with an immediate network of contacts and individuals joining the same company at the same time from a wide variety of backgrounds and at different career stages. Some were recent graduates from degrees of varying disciplines, my of course as I mentioned being business management However, others were from teaching, history, law, English, finance, to name but a few. Some others had experience in post-academic graduate field, while others made the lateral switch from their respective industries of coaching, teaching, accounting, also to name but a few. Despite the great variety of the group which I've mentioned, we were met with the same consistent standard of sessions delivered, which equipped us with the skills and more importantly the confidence as individuals to advance in what is currently a huge financial industry. The support we received, both financially and non-financially, through the academy process and all involved was incredible. And I feel that it has put me in an extremely fortuitous position to concentrate and grow myself, knowing that those great support avenues are fully behind me, both within Century and those involved with the Shared Skills Programme. The transparent structure within Fincher itself, um, course completion of the academy, has also been conducive to growth for me, 
Um, I was enrolled in Century's two-year analyst program, which helped me further develop my skills and grow my personal brand in the NI finance industry. Um, as an individual, I was given a clear checklist uh, to work through those points and gain my promotion. Personally, I'm extremely grateful for the academy experience and having held very little knowledge in the area before joining. The induction sessions in Microsoft Excel laid the foundations for me to grow uh, and train myself further in VBA programming. Um, I've developed this area as an interest outside of work now, and I'll be able to say that I've implemented successful processes for the client, which are gladly met with positive feedback. I cannot convey my full appreciation of the academy process helping me personally as an individual amongst my peers also, as these acquired skills and others developed are immediately transferable in absolutely any area of my future consulting career. So thank you very much for listening and I will pass you back to Graham. Very good. Thanks very much, Dylan. I think that's been uh, really useful. Uh, should that sort of concludes our introductory uh, comments and we'll hopefully have a, a discussion answering questions you might have. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Dylan, for the, the feedback as well. It's really useful to get that. Um, and Graham, obviously, as you mentioned during your presentation, the pandemic has had an impact in terms of, of how this, the uh, programmes are delivered. Um, to how, how do you see that developing over time? Obviously, we're still in the same scenario where the majority of um, business is being conducted online. Um, do you, you think that that has a, a positive impact you know, going forward as well? Thanks, Chair, for, for the question. Uh, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Anne uh, come in in, in a moment. Um, I think, from our perspective, whenever uh, COVID first hit us, uh, we were very concerned, and I know employers were very concerned about the, the delivery of the model because one of the big benefits of it is actually having the, the group of, of individuals who are conducting the training coming together uh, and building relationships. So that's a, a real positive. Uh, you know, outworking of, of, of the academy, so employers were certainly concerned uh, about that. Uh, but the move to online happened relatively uh, quickly, uh, and certainly the experience, uh, the first one that we, we, we did online was Microsoft, uh, and that has been a, a really positive experience. It was the first virtual graduation that uh, ever, ever attended, uh, and it was great to see so many uh, individuals who had come through that process of going online and the experience uh, seemed to be a, a good one. Uh, feedback from employers is that uh, they're very happy with how, how it operates, they're very happy with the quality of the training uh, and how it's being uh, delivered. So, um, certainly I, I don't have any particular concerns with that mode of, of delivery, but uh, I suppose like everyone, I would much prefer to see the, the groups coming together and building that um, relationship between the individuals and that team working is so very very important and I think it is a, a real challenge to, to create that team environment uh, working across uh, remotely but certainly the skills that individuals are, are, are getting through the, the online delivery is equally a, a, a high, high standard as a classroom based uh, activity. Maybe if I could maybe ask Adam to comment on that if she had any thoughts. Oh, and I think you're on mute. She's talking? No, and we can't hear you. 
Oh, she's she's in this. We can see her. You see on the on the bottom of the screen there. Anne, can you hear us? Nod if you can. She's nodding vigorously. Yeah. <laughs> I know what's happening, because like, she, she is in the spotlight, oh. but we can't hear you. Oh, it's moved. Oh. Now we can see you, Anne, but we can't hear you. You j Not the sign. It's not coming up as mute. What's happened, John, earlier? Is what just gone, I think, isn't he? He's given up. <laughs> He's watching TV. And I'm tempted to suggest do it through the form of mime, but that would be <laughs> very difficult. If we I do my presentation through the medium of mime. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we maybe go back to Graham. That's, that's okay, Chair. Um, Turbo. Really Turbo. 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 Okay, no, thanks for that, Graham. Um, and I guess well, as uh, the pandemic kind of proceeds and um, and we move into the, the recovery phase at, at hopefully some point in the not too distant future, there's likely to be increased demand for these types of programmes. And uh, as we see, unfortunately, when furlough ends, there's likely to be more unemployment and, and, and things like that. So there, there may be increased demand for these type of programmes. Is that something that you are um, planning for and are ready to step up into that space? And widen out into other fields as well obviously we've seen i suppose the financial services and the digital skills um really being the focus i suppose in a lot of the academies um is there plans to kind of expand that out well, I, I think you're right chair um, we're already seeing uh, some of that come through all, all already um for example we have a number of, of welding academies uh, that, are, that are being in the process of being launched um and i think that it is a positive where we have potentially we have redundancies coming through caterpillar and we're, we're we're looking to use that type of model to try and retrain those individuals and the skills uh where, where companies are continuing to grow and there is a, a, a big demand so yes you're right that there is demand in terms of financial services in terms of cyber security but there's also demand for us to say things in, in advanced manufacturing and, and in other sectors as well so for us it's really about getting a, an understanding of where the the job opportunities are uh, and making sure that we are able to provide the skills that they're, that they're looking for so going back to the point i made earlier on around close working relationship between the education providers the employers and, and ourselves working in, in close uh, partnership it, it is really important i also think uh, that the relationship that we have with invest and i is, is key as well as we look for future job, job opportunities uh, and again we have developed that relationship and we're working very closely with them uh, making sure that we can identify either new companies coming in or, or where there is growth sectors here in, in, in Northern Ireland. So that has been really an important element of, of identifying where, where they're at, how we can best support them and, and help them. And, and I would have thought, you know, even, uh, we haven't talked about this, but even sort of during the, the, the initial stages of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we 
being introduced a whole a wide range of, of, of new courses and programs. So that just really demonstrates the ability of the, the education sector to adapt and to achieve very, very quickly. Uh, and I'm more than confident that we will be able just to step up uh, once things start to do open up and things start to change and job opportunities do, do become uh, available. I think that that's a positive thing. Um, and I, just one more question for me before I hand over to the other members. Um, in relation to the, the level of qualification or experience you need to, to participate in the academies, is it a degree or is it two years relevant experience? Is there any, I suppose, um, concern around that potentially being a barrier to some people, maybe those who are longer term unemployed, being able to access these type of um, academies? Or is there perhaps plans to look at this, um, you know, widening out to, to look at, at it being accessible to a wider range of people? No, I'll absolutely agree with you. Uh, I think we're heading into a very different environment, uh, and it is important that we identify opportunities for, for individuals to upskill uh, and use the academy model. Um, and I do think that we have done a range of particularly collaborative academies, whether that was in hospitality and tourism, whether that was in welding or our engineering, where you didn't need to have a, a graduate qualification. And it really depends on the skill set that the, the, the employers are, are looking for. So they, it's employers who determine sort of, you know, the, the criteria, and we are working very much with them. So it depends on the jobs that they're are available, type skills that, that, that are needed, uh, and we work very much in, in close uh, partnership with the employers to identify uh, how we can best fill, fill, fill those, those opportunities. Uh, but you're right in terms of some of the, the higher end jobs that the academies have been involved in, uh, working with the likes of Microsoft, PwC, um, Fintru, and, and, and others. Uh, they tended to be for, for, for graduates, but and there are other academies that we've worked with uh, that uh, were for different uh, different levels of, 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 of ability. Uh, and I see that sort of broadening out and, and widening as we uh, look to come out of uh, the current pandemic and, and into a very different economic climate. No, oh, look, thanks for that. I think that that's a positive thing. Um, I'm going to hand over to John Stewart, first of all. Thanks, Chair. Um, thank you, Graham. Thank you, Dylan, for the presentation so far. Um, Dylan, thanks very much. By the way, I think that was really insightful um, just to get um, somebody that's actually gone through the course and uh, how the, the outcomes have you know, come about for yourself. I think it's so often we see these projects on paper and we hear from officials, we don't actually get to hear and see what it's actually like for the people that participate in them. Um, so congratulations on the success that you've experienced so far. Um, as much as I just want to touch on, how did you become aware of that scheme, Dylan? Um, did you find it easy to access? And um, on that subject then, Graham, yourself, do you think there's enough awareness for young people who are maybe going to participate in these schemes? How are we getting you know, awareness of these schemes out there? I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> yes, no problem. Um, well, thank your question, thank your comments, appreciate it. No problem. Um, so I guess I heard firstly about the academy scheme through a friend who graduated from Queens. Um, and you know, I had also uh, one of my housemates applied. Um, so I think in terms of the promotion, it was kind of very organic. 
but it was more in the century from the kind of perspective that I noticed it. Um, doing a bit of research, and I found out that a lot of, kind of my other peers across my uh, network had also applied for various other academies within the Belfast Metropolitan College. Um, so I think it's a very popular thing. For me, I didn't have a clue kind of what avenue I wanted to go down. So I think the fear for me was that in university you're in such a nurturing culture um, where you can do whatever you want and be here you want. And maybe for some young people, the fear might be that when you enter full-time employment, that could be watered down in a sense. So um, I feel like the academy really helped me kind of clarify my own career path personally as an individual. And I'm talking about years. The consensus is very positive and amongst the same that you know it gives us a quick kind of 60 week briefing on a topic and we can then say we have this industry specialised knowledge on that topic um, and that then is applicable to every kind of uh, business that we enter going forward and um, you know and we're very 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 grateful for that of course as well. Okay thanks for that Don. In terms of Johnny, to your, your second question around uh, awareness, you're, you're, you're right. Um, I, I suppose before the, the pandemic, one of the big issues that we had was identifying a sufficient number of participants to, to run some of the, the, the academies. Now, that has changed quite, uh, quite significantly, uh, but I still believe that um, there's more that, that can be done to, to raise awareness. Now, you may or you may not see some of the adverts that we have recently launched on, on, on television to spread the news of the, the academies because I think there is more talent out there and, and more individuals that we can attract to the academies uh, to actually uh, fill some of the vacancies. And, and I know that there are employers who, who are very keen uh, to, to employ individuals using the, this type of model. So, uh, it has been a challenge for us over the years. Um, this year has been very, very different, obviously, uh, but it's something that I think we would want to look at to see if there's more we, that we do. I think, I think Anne is back online again, so maybe ask Anne if she would like to. Can, can you actually hear me? Yeah, can, yeah. yes. Yes, I can. Yeah, oh, great. Um, um, just on, on how we get our message out there. We have launched an advertising campaign on the 20th of December. Uh, hopefully you will have seen it on TV. It's also on radio and it'll be billboards across, spread across the whole country and different towns and cities. We also um, promote heavily on social media because obviously our target audience um, tends to be younger um, people. Um, there's no restriction in the sense that you're over 18 and you meet the criteria anyone can look by. Um, so there is the social media um, advertising as well. Plus, um, we launch at the Academy with a press release. We do uh, bursts on, on radio as well. And uh, we promote through Twitter or um, Facebook, etc. So we're pushing hard. Ray's right, um, before the uh, pandemic, uh, we were concerned about numbers um, not being high enough. Now the companies are incredibly impressed uh, by the caliber of candidates that apply. We did get a spike after the pandemic where we had one academy where about 500 people applied for it. Uh, now we have returned to probably pre-pandemic levels uh, where we're getting around 150 applications for 
how to come and get the applications per category, which gives companies a very good pool of candidates to select uh, the right people onto the academy that they, they hope will do well and progress, and that they can then interview and offer employment to. Okay. Thanks very much for that. I had another one, but do you want to go around and we'll come back? Oh, no, go ahead. Um, that was very insightful. Thanks, Anne, as well, for that. Um, the final bit is just, I mean, where do you see the ceiling on this scheme in terms of if there was more financial support available for it, would you like to see it rolled out even further to, to, and more opportunities given to people who want the avail of it? I mean, appreciate whenever we do come out of this pandemic and things start to return to normal and more young people are, are looking for jobs, um, do you think that there is the, the amount of potential candidates out there to scale us up even further? I think uh, the limit of the scheme is uh, identifying the job opportunities. To run an academy, we probably need anywhere around sort of 20 job vacancies to actually make it uh, value for money. So that has been the, the, the real sort of limit. I don't think financials or, or funding has, has troubled us in, in, in the past. I think it's having sufficient numbers of jobs, uh, so that's why you tend to find that the, the academies that you want are, are larger companies who have uh, you know, 20 plus vacancies. Uh, we have done collaborative uh, academies in the past as well, so that's bringing companies from similar sectors uh, together, uh, and that has worked well in trying to um, combine uh, sort of a number of, of 20 plus. So. It, it's sort of the, the number of job vacancies that has been the limiting factor. Um, so the more that we can do, and we have been able to, to fill uh, those those spots. So I think that, to me, is the big issue for us, John. Okay. Thanks for that. Thanks, everyone, and keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chair, and thanks to Graham and Anne and Dylan for uh, the presentation, and particularly to Dylan. I think, uh, like John has said, it's particularly... Um, good to hear from uh, course participants and those who have uh, benefited from the academy and I think that that in itself is uh, how you uh, sell the programme if you like and I think success breeds success so, so anybody watching today I think that that's a good example uh, of someone who has undertaken the academy and, and made a real success of it so, so thanks for that and I know there's many great examples of the academies out there and uh, we think of uh, Fintru and Alchemy, and I know that uh, the Minister recently announced a number of uh, places in the Academy for Fintru. I think the, the application uh, are, are still open for that, actually, and closing at the end of January. Uh, so, so there's lots of examples, and we encourage people to get involved. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was around uh, the availability of, of such academies for those who have not graduated, those maybe who uh, leave... Um, you know, are, are leaving school, uh, maybe do A-levels. Could you give us some examples of academies that have been successful that have not been graduate academies? Is, could you maybe give us some examples there? Um, I think I mean, the, the main ones that are, are, as I just outlined, is the, the likes of the, the Welding Academy, so the ones that don't engineering, uh, and um, those type of academies, they, those are the ones that have not required a, a, a graduate type in. Um, let me ask Anne if she would want to sort of give a bit more detail in terms of uh, those academies and how they've operated. 
Yes, well, um, it is a demand-led program, and so the um, criteria, the eligibility, the level uh, that industry is looking for is dictated to by by industry. So we respond to that uh, demand. Um, on top of the welding categories, um, we've done CNC academies. Uh, those are collaborative and bringing several companies together, and they haven't asked for any qualifications on the welding um, collaborative academies. We did do a dance academy up in the Northwest Regional College. I think it was at HND level. We did three academies up there um, with approximately 20 on each academy. Um, so we are open to it, and we've set the um, shared skills program that it is wider than graduate level, but we are led by industry, <coughs> and that's the um, versatility and the responsiveness of the department to industry. We let them tell us what do you need, and then we, we, we will set the criteria with the college, the company, uh, and that's how it gets dictated. Yes. No, thanks for that. And in terms of the, so when you talk about the likes of the Welding Academy, obviously those types of um, activities would be more hands-on. Um, in terms of the numbers over the course of this past year, I'm assuming that anybody particularly in that type of academy, the numbers would be reduced, would they, in terms of just the physical nature of it? Is that, is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we we have we sold um, some um, welding academies that were planned for this year, and we've just launched uh, um, new ones in Southwest College. We've launched two welding academies, collaborative academies there. We've launched uh, we're due to launch one in the Northwest. Um, and again, obviously that depends on you know um, keeping people safe and COVID restrictions, because you're absolutely right. Um, you know, they have to be carried out in a welding booth and obviously those academies are dictated again by the facilities uh, because you need a welding booth, we can capture those 12 people on those academies. Um, but yes, depending on the restrictions, where the first one we're due to start in February down in Southwest College. So if there are restrictions still in place at that stage, I know the current restrictions are due to end by then, but obviously we don't know how things will hide. So we're waiting to see, but we're carrying on as planned at this stage, and we'll wait and see if there are further restrictions about obviously comply with that. Okay, thanks, Chair. Thanks, Gary. Gordon. Thanks, Chair, and thanks everyone for your contributions so far. And I think we all were impressed with Dylan. I think he came across very assertive and, and obviously has learned a lot from from the academy. So well done to to him and all those involved. I think it's very encouraging to see results like that. Um, most of the points have been covered. Just the impact of lockdown, I suppose, has been significant for participants. Um, can they continue to to go through the work of the academy even during the furlough period, if they're off in furlough, for example? Thanks. Or, uh, yeah. So, as I said, the the training does uh, continue on. Uh, the, the, the individuals. That, that we have, they're not employed by, by the companies, so they're going through a, a training program, so for, they're, they're not furloughed, uh, and they are able to, to undertake uh, their, their training. Um, but some of them not, some of them not employed, no? No employees, no? They're not? They're all not yeah, employed? No, all, all the, they're all trained trainees, so um, they're, they're able to, to undertake uh, the, the, the training. 
And is that done for, on a full-time basis then for a specific period? Yeah, yeah, the training is um, on a full-time basis. Right, and what about the six academies? Where are they all based? Skills of, of, of 
students of both primary level and further higher education level. Is it an issue of something we need to look at at that level as well, rather than having as an animal of the end that we have to review how we deliver our degree to read courses and others, in terms of the employability of, of our young people? I think from an employer's point of view, John, that is uh, a key message that comes through consistently. I think the view from one of employers is that we're, we're good at preparing people or young people for, for exams, on passing exams, but you're right in terms of the social transversal skills, things that Dylan just mentioned about confidence, problem solving, team working. Those types of skills, um, and employers would say, once they employ an individual, they have a lot of work to do with that person to, to make them work, work really. So I think there is more that we can do to make sure that individuals have the life skills, the work skills that they need, uh, that employers are, are looking for uh, in, in the future. So it, it is an issue. Um, and that's why I, I made reference to team working. Uh, that we develop through the academy model that works well, uh, but it's something that I think we do need to consider in terms of uh, the curriculum at, at, at school and, and at university as well. How do we get, give our, our young people the skills that, they, that the uh, employers are currently looking for? So, no, I, I absolutely agree that there, there is an issue there. And whenever we uh, work with the OECD, it was one of the, the key issues that came through in, in, in their report the importance of those employability skills. Uh, and it's consistent whenever you talk to our employers that they have individuals who are for your work really. Okay, just, just one final question, Chair. Are you in there? Can, can I just say, um, I think also the factor of speed and how quickly we can respond to employers' skills demands is important. Obviously, if you're putting a subject into a curriculum, it takes much longer to do. We, a lot of our categories are in IT, cybersecurity, AI, robotics, analytics, that type of thing. Very, very fast moving technologies, which we can upskill lectures in, and it can become part of the curriculum. But the speed at which we move as an academy and respond to what employers are looking for is much faster than what an education system can do. So, um, and also, when companies take those um, academy participants into um, you know, their career, their, their job roles, they continue to progress with them and they continue to train them. And I'll just say with Dylan there, he has progressed to associate level. So it's it's not, it's never over. Um, you know, it continues uh, with academies with employment as well. Um, so can, I, can I just add to, to, to what Anne has just said as well? So, one of the key themes coming through from uh, this pandemic is the move to, to digitization and the importance of, of digital skills. Uh, and again, even before the pandemic, that was one of the key policy outcomes that we wanted in our skills strategy, is that digital spine right from primary school through to, to PhD. And that, the, the pandemic and, and how businesses is changing over the last nine months, going online, changing their business processes. It is just uh, underlined the importance of, of digital skills in our education system and making sure that young people are, are prepared for what I believe is going to be a, a very different workplace than it was pre-COVID-19. Uh, pre and uh, I think those two factors, employability skills, 
problem solving as, as well as, as their transfer to, to digital skills, the, the two of the most important features that has come out of, of, of this pandemic? And maybe just a last comment or a question. Uh, I'd also like to see it uh, expanded to, to allow smaller medium enterprises become involved because 20 employees means it's tailored towards larger companies. And it can be argued that those larger companies are, are well placed to train their staff. Uh, and as it's the case in Dallas case, there's continuous training. But I would like to see it being expanded to allow smaller medium enterprises to become involved, to allow them to expand their business as much as I can. Yeah, I, I, I agree, uh, and I think we have tried a number of collaborative academies, uh, but I think there is a, a, an opportunity for us to, to maybe do a, a bit more around that. Invest and I have uh, developed a number of collaborative networks. Uh, Mega is, is an example of that, uh, bringing together the manufacturing sector. So the more that we um, bring together, as you say, the SMEs, and try to pull the, the demand for or for jobs or the demand for skills. I think that would make it a, a little bit easier for us to run a, a number of collaborative academies. Uh, but I agree with you in terms of the, the demand. It is right. easier for larger companies to, to avail of the academy type model. So it is an area where we have, we have a bit more work to do. And can we bring Sinead into the spotlight, please? Hi, good morning everyone and thank you for the presentation and um, I also would like to say uh, Dylan's testimony was excellent uh, and it clearly illustrates the benefits of such programs as most skills um, is the most uh, predominantly important issue for a successful economy and, and, and really probably my uh, question is to, to Graham in, in relation to the OECD report and, and he made reference to it a number of times in his presentations about employability uh, and about uh, digital skills etc and, and, and maybe just kind of really to tease out like um, there's lots of reports out there you know either we have too many graduates or we don't have enough graduates in specific areas of work how do you think that it would be best to address this because the assured skills program in the academies essentially what they're doing is retraining a lot of people to have um, a, 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 another career or a different career or a, a more focused uh, career in, in a different pathway but is there a fundamental problem in our education system that we are having to then do further work Um, I think Sinead has froze. Of the academies and the family program because I love the collaborative approach. Uh, I love the fact that it's universities and businesses and it's demand led. But I'm wondering is there any interventions that we could be using um, at an earlier point that um, does necessitate these interventions that we want? Uh, thanks, Sinead, for, for, for your question. Um, I think there's always going to be uh, a need for, for these types of, of interventions. 
I think for individuals at, at 18, whatever age, whenever they're making choices around what university to go to or what, what uh, courses that they want to study, it's very, very difficult for individuals to make that choice. I suppose I, I, I was sort of a product of that as well. I went to university, I studied uh, economics and politics, and they ended up doing a, a conversion course into, into accountancy. So it's very difficult for an individual sort of to, to make that decision at that point in time. Uh, the other part of that I think that you need is the fact that our economy is changing so very, very quickly uh, means that the opportunities are changing, the skills demanded from, from employers are changing very, very quickly. So I think it is really important for us to have a system that is able to react and respond and is agile to the, the needs of, of our employers. And if we're having you know, a, a program where we're taking an individual, we're training them for 68 weeks, and then they're able to actually apply for, um, in many cases, in 80% of the cases, they're able to secure a, a job in one of these uh, one of these companies. I think that it, it is a good outcome. Um, so I always think there's going to be a need to retrain and, and reskill individuals, primarily because of, of, of the changes in our economy. I suppose the, the bit that I am more concerned about is the fact that if you look at our current labor market, uh, there are too many of our individuals who have no, are no qualifications. And the fact that our money is changing so, so quickly, uh, and the roles will demand a higher level of skills, I think for us the challenge is thinking about how do we retrain and upskill those individuals who have, have no, are no skills. And I think that is very much about working with employers and working with the business community here uh, to make sure that we can upskill them. And that's why I made reference to the likes of Skills Focus, which is a, a, a really uh, useful program. It can be adapted, it can be changed to an employer's needs. But it's really important to get that message out to employers that they need to upskill their, their workforce. This isn't just for, for government to do. I think employers and businesses have a responsibility as well to upskill their, their current workforce because things are, are changing very, very quickly. And as I said to John, I mean, the, the digital piece, the transformation in the workplace is, is so, so significant. The last nine months has transformed the workplace. Uh, uh, and whenever I say that, I mean it is moving towards a, a digital workplace, uh, and that requires a, a very different set of skills. So the fact that we have these programs that are free at the point of use, it's really for the employers to sit down and think about the skills needs that they mm -hmm. need. And how we can help and support them to, to do that. So we we stand ready to, to work with employers and colleges in particular have done a, a brilliant job in, in delivering those types of programs. So that's a very long one to answer your question, Shelley, but it's a, a very open question. I know and it was an open question and I think one of the things from the OECD report that I, I found interesting as well was the fact that they they, they uh, indicated that there was um, a greater emphasis needed to be put into the post-primary school career guidance uh, and I think that that, is, that that is something that we would collectively need to work at if we're going to get the skill base um, that, that uh, is required for our economy and for our individuals. And now this is probably uh, not a very fair question, but I want to give uh, Dylan a question. Obviously there is training on, um, you know, 68-week training and um, there is uh, some support, monitoring support. Is that not support enough, Dylan? Um, you know, there, there's a small training 
um, uh, support, uh, support. It's a love for one program. It's more than enough for Well, thank you for your question. Um, I think to give a, a, a non-purposely vague answer, I think it's sort of essential. Um, you know, whether that amount uh, is kind of uh, appropriate for everyone or if it's uh, helpful. For me, I'm in a very fortunate position. I'm just going to university. Um, although my um, fees for travelling were quite exponential, um, I think I was in a very good position where you know, I wasn't um, in any other role uh, and I had support from my parents, um, luckily. But I think, um, you know, speaking to my peers, um, honestly, about the, the academy and the Shakespeare program, there were no concerns with the fast support. I think um, possibly without that being there, I don't think, you know, it would um, be maybe an option for some, um, you know, having to leave their employment, whether it be, you know, part-time or another full-time role for six to eight weeks can be a financial burden. Um, so I think definitely it helped, not particularly me per se, but it helped others um, in those scenarios, 100%. Yeah, I think for those maybe living at home or whatever, if, if it's important, but if, if you're maybe in a contract for rented accommodation, et cetera, et cetera, it, it might be a buyer. So it's just one aspect, but of course it is circumstantial. So thank you very much to everybody uh, and keep up the good work and um, as uh, and all the picture skills and more about. Okay, Graham, um oh sorry, you want to come in, Graham? No, just a final comment of this year. I mean she, she just touched on it there at the very end around pathways. Having clarity around the different pathways is absolutely essential. When we have apprenticeships, we have traineeships. Uh, and that has changed very, very significantly. And an employers' mindsets have changed as, as to what they're, they're, they're looking for. Uh, and some of the other pathways that maybe not traditionally have used, people would call university or, 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 or whatever. Uh, but the way that employers are recruiting and upskilling uh, their, their, their employees has changed very, very significantly. So I absolutely agree on the about visibility on the different pathways and the benefits to different pathways. Is, is so, so important and my career advice is an area that we, we are very much focused on and, and will again be a key feature of, of our skills strategy. So I agree just for that last point that you did. Well, thank you very much um, and thanks all three of you for the briefing this morning. It has been very useful, particularly in advance of our um, micro inquiry at the end of the month. And I'm sure we'll be hearing some more from you in um, the not too distant future as well. So thanks again. Um, do members have any things they want to suggest so on the back of that? Can you just remind us the micro inquiry date? The 28th, Gordon. 28th. Thursday, the 28th. Thursday, um, Alice. We're running at 10 until 12, and members' slot is sort of 11.15 till 12. Um, I appreciate members of other committees that day. Once we've got a way of doing it on Starleaf, it means we can do it as part of a committee meeting, but that, that facility's just not there yet. So it'll be done online? It's a Zoom. It's going to be through Zoom. So we'll, we'll set that all up and send out all the invitations and so on. That's already in hand. The first session's at 10, is it? So 10 until 12, members join for the feedback session, 11.15 until noon. So we'll have all of the timings sent out for members as well. Um, there'll be breakout rooms, 10.15 till 11.15, then members come for the feedback session. Good, thank you.
Okay then, um, members are happy enough, we'll move on to our, our next briefing, which is um, also from the Department on January monitoring. There is a clerk's memo at page 6 of the table papers and a written briefing from the Department um, at page 9 of your table papers. There was a delay on issuing the final paper to the committee um, as a result of the extension to the submission process for the monitoring round. Um, as part of January monitoring, DFE has submitted bids of 33.9 million for five inescapable non-COVID pressures and five COVID-19 bids totaling 54.7 million to support economic recovery and one high priority bid of 8 million in respect of higher education for quality related um, research. So if I could just ask to bring into the spotlight um, Sharon Hetherington, Joanna and Joanna Pack, please. Park. Sorry, Park, that oh, was a sorry, misprint. Park. Sorry, check. Is a misprint in my pack or my notes. Um, so if I could hand over to yourself, um, Sharon, just to make an opening statement and then we'll open it up to members for questions. Thank you. Good morning and thank you, Chair. Um, as you said, I'm joined by my colleague, Joanna Park. Um, and do refer to the delay in the committee paper, so just like to apologise for that. Um, as you said, there was a further data exercise commission, and we felt it was important um, that the committee got a complete picture. Um, so the paper that you have in front of you this morning describes my department's response to general monitoring. Um, as you're aware, the monitoring exercise, um, which typically occurs three times a year, allows departments to realign its budget allocation on the basis of emerging need. Flexibility of budgetary management for the departments is normally limited, typically to facilitate <coughs> the reallocation of small amounts without recourse to the Department of Finance or the Executive. However, given the need for departments to respond more quickly to emerging pressures, the Executive has been agreed um, that flexibility could be given to reallocating non-red-fence budgets to meet um, internal emerging pressures. The paper describes in some detail easements, budget pressures, the reallocations that have been made, and then further bids that have been made for additional funding. So I won't repeat the detail and these introductory remarks, but I will just briefly summarise for you the headline figures. In total, and right to the nearest million pounds, our minister has approved the internal reallocation of 18 million of resource sale, non-mindset's budget to fund emerging pressures. There is a reduced requirement of 105 million in respect of a number of COVID reinvest budgets for various schemes and initiatives, the most significant being 93 million in respect of the high street support scheme. There are also bids across a number of COVID schemes totaling 39 million. And in addition to that, bids totaling 55 million have been submitted to the US for COVID related initiatives to support economic recovery. The largest of these rates to three bids, totaling 42 million, to facilitate the extension of European funding into 2021-22 and beyond. Other bids relate to seven million for loss of commercial, commercial research income and higher education, and assistance to tourism accounts for five million to support recovery, sorry, for recovery support um, for strategic tourism assets. So this brings the DFE COVID-related bids to 93 million. Inescapable non-COVID resource sale bids have been paid to the UF for 34 million. Of this, 31 million relates to cover required for expected credit losses from using financial transaction capital. And the Finance Minister wrote to the Economy Ministry yesterday to confirm the Treasury will fund the 31 million. 
a bit of the equipment has been made for higher education quality research, which will increase economic productivity, prosperity, and tackle major societal challenges. So in total, um, bids to the OS for COVID and non-COVID from DFE are 135 million. If I move on to capital DL then, as a result of January monitoring, the Minister has reallocated 3 million of capital to cover departmental pressures, um, and 1 million um, of reduced requirement has also been submitted to the sorry, to DOF. Um, a separate capital bid has been needed for 6 million pounds for Project Stratum, and there is a reduced requirement of 12 million for financial transaction capital. This is due to a surrender of 10 million pounds from Tourism NI, as the funding is no longer required for the Game of Thrones project, as the investors have secured alternative finance. And there's also 2 million from the best NI on financial transaction capital, and that's due to there being less demand in the market for that source of finance. Finally, DFE submitted AMU resource base, totaling 202 million. 62 million is in respect of the forecast position for student loans and 140 million um, to account for the high street voucher scheme that will now be delivered in 2021-22. An AMA capital bid of 16 million has also been submitted in respect of student loans. Chair, that's a quick summary of the paper that you have in front of you. Joanna and I would be happy to do our best to answer any questions that you might have and to provide additional clarification and explanation. And of course, where we cannot give you precise or complete answers, Okay, thank you um, very much for that. It's a useful overview. Um, I have just a couple of questions, that, um, and then we'll open up to members. I suppose the the um, the first one, and I suppose the most striking, um, is the the uh, reduced requirement in relation to the high street voucher scheme. Obviously, that that's a, a huge amount of money that was allocated in respect of that, um, and. It's, can you explain why it's not now being used this financial year? Yes, um, certainly. Uh, so we have got 95 million um, uh, allocated to the high street voucher scheme, and we are with a reduced requirement of 93 million. And the main reason for that reduced requirement is because of the increased restrictions um, and obviously the health situation and. You know, there has to be a judgment call around when those restrictions might be um, eased <coughs> and I suppose eased enough to get the best economic benefit um, for the money within this scheme. Um, so, you know, we really just felt as a department that we would be better trying to focus on running this scheme early in the new financial year. Um, so, so therefore, um, the money is being surrendered now. We obviously have proposals to use that money, um, which which we put um, in, in January monitoring round in terms of um, bids for, for other things that, that we could use that funding on. But essentially, the reason why that scheme has been deferred is the health reasons. Now, that is not to say that um, in taking this forward, um, you, you know, there, there were some logistical challenges, certainly around getting a reliable data set to use, but that's not the only reason for the deferment. Okay, and I guess the question I would have is just, just in relation to actually using the money, could it be used this financial year, put onto those um, prepay cards that we had heard described previously, and then be utilised in the next financial year so that the bid that had previously been made and allocated could actually be used this financial year? Because 
Is there a guarantee or even a suggestion that the money might be available again in the next financial year when we don't have this same amount of COVID um, resource allocated to the executive? <coughs> um, well, I think sort of in terms of the logistics and the timing of when certain things happen, um, the treatment of that in terms of how it's accounted for is obviously governed by accounting standards. And whenever we were looking at this, um, we felt that we needed to push the scheme into the next financial year. So, you know, um, just to load the cards would not have been enough to say that we would have needed to um, account for that amount of money. You'll see within the paper, um, we, are, we have made an Amy bid for 140 million. So that is to allow us um, to account for the scheme correctly in this financial year, but it's not as much they are money, um, which will be needed next year. Um, so there wasn't really a way around that um, to, to utilise the money for the High Street scheme this year, given the, the level of restrictions and really where we felt the trajectory would be. Okay. I'm not sure that, that I they understand that. Can you maybe just explain a wee bit more about the the bid that has been or the Amy bid that has been made in relation to it? Yes, sure. Um, so we've made um, an Amy bid for 140 million, and um, what that is based on is um, a model where each adult would get a hundred pounds each. So obviously, the initial money that had been allocated wouldn't have been enough um, to give um, each adult a hundred pounds each, but the Amy bid is based on that model. It will obviously be subject to executive approval. Um, you know, so, so that will be a decision for the executive as to whether it wants to get on points each or whether it will be a bit less to um, I suppose stay within the parameters of what's allocated this year. This will have to be money coming from somewhere else. Okay, so in relation to that Amy bid, is that something that has been made then to the executive or to Treasury? It's been made to the executive. Okay. Um, and I, I guess then the, the question just remains in terms of the next financial year. Are you um, confident that that bid will be um, realised? Um, I suppose I can't react an executive decision. Um, I do know that um, you know, the executive are aware of the proposals here. Um, and I suppose it will depend on the political will to allocate money to that. Um, I, I think that um, you know, it's, it's, it's likely there will be more COVID funding coming from um, Treasury next year. And I know that the Department of Finance are also speaking to Treasury about um, being allowed to flex any potential overspends into next year as well. Okay, I, I suppose the concern that I would have and, and maybe other committee members can reflect on this themselves is that this funding not being utilised this year puts at risk the, the scheme actually being able to be operated in, in the next financial year and obviously it's a very significant amount of money that has been allocated to that that is now you know, potentially some of it's being handed back and, and, and then there's bits in relation to, to some of the, the rest of it. Uh, I guess just in terms of, of using that amount of money and the potential for, for underspend is, is quite significant in, in respect of that. Um, and just in relation to the, the accounting of it, is, has that something that has been explored to the fullest with DOF? Um, we have 
in terms of the scheme and the money not utilised, I think, um, given where we are with the health restrictions um, and, and the likely impact that releasing these cards may have, um, you know, the decision was taken that um, that would not be the right thing to do. Um, as I said, we have proposals here to utilise that money if the executive agrees, and, and I think given that given that we have accepted where we are in terms of the health restrictions, you know, the, the right thing to do is to surrender this money um, so where it can be utilised elsewhere and put into the economy maybe through other routes that you know that can happen. In terms of the accounting treatment, yes, um, we have looked at this very carefully and um, you know, we also um, had conversations with the government office about sort of how we would propose to shape this as well. Okay, um, thanks for that. And I guess the point I suppose I've been making in relation to it, obviously we completely understand the, the health restrictions that are in place at the minute and the impact that that has in terms of the, the scheme being able to be used in this financial year. The, the proposal, I suppose, would be that it would be loaded up and used in, into the next financial year. Um, but that's something that we can pick up with the department in, in more detail. Um, Chair, sorry, just to confirm, the loading of the cards would not allow under the accounting treatment board to be recognised as resource LSE accounts in the next financial year. That's where the AMI bit comes in, and it's all to do with the government accounting office. So even the pre-loading of the cards would not be strong enough because there's still an action that needs to be done by the member like to spend the money after that. So that's the point in which we can recognise that in the financial account as resource sales. Okay, no thank you. No, thanks for that. Um, I guess there's just a couple of other things that um, I wanted to pick up on. Um, <clears throat> maybe hand over to John O'Dowd first of all, and then I'll, I'll come back in myself. I just need to find my, my place in my notes. Go on ahead, John. <coughs> oh, John, I think you're on John's mute. John's on mute, yeah. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah. Yes, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, thanks, sorry. Uh, I just want to reflect on the other part of the AMI bit, uh, which is in relation to student loans. Just reflect the financial hardship that many families and workers uh, find themselves under this time as a result of COVID. Um, as part of that you know, student loan bit, has there been any sort of representations made to the Treasury in relation to compensating students?
police and that fund and we were told no there is still funding available there um, within that hardship fund if students wish to use it. Uh, I, I appreciate that Char um, and I have serious concerns about the flexibility of the student hardship fund but this is a slightly different issue. This is the issue of students have paid fees uh, for a student experience which they haven't which hasn't been fulfilled. Uh, and I note that uh, representation has been made through EOE for the Treasury, I understand, uh, for, for additional funds for students with families uh, and workers are facing considerable hardship during the COVID. The point I'm trying to make is this has there been any consideration in seeking compensation for students who are paying fees for experience around getting and paying rent for accommodation around using it? Um, John, I am not aware um, whether there has or there hasn't in, in terms of that. So perhaps we could get the policy officials to follow up with you on that. Uh, if you could, please. And did you just finally, in relation to the very Um uh, if next year, next financial year, if that scheme goes ahead, uh, and the money's on the cards. If that money isn't spent within that financial year, will it be lost? Um, I suppose the details of the scheme are still being worked out, so I'm really just talking off the top of my head. Um, but you know, I would think that we would want to timeline those cards. So you know, not not to give it such a tight timeline that it makes it impossible for people to use. Um, but you know, timeline it so that we can make sure that the scheme and the budget can align and, and we understand you know, where that money might be. So I suppose the answer will be on the design of the scheme and to sort of make sure that the money isn't lost. Okay, thank you. Thanks, um, Sharon and jo Joanna. Um, sorry, I, I just find what I wanted to go back to. So, Sharon, you uh, referred in your remarks to um, finance having confirmed that Treasury was going to meet a number of bids. Sorry, could you just talk to those? Certainly. Um, so, those bids are subject to the Treasury Act, which requires that the Treasury Department meet the Treasury Act, which requires that the Treasury that's what I refer to. So it's expected credit losses. Um, so we have a number of bids in terms of expected credit losses. So this is um, where if you have a loan or you're using financial transaction capital, um, there's been a new accounting standard IFRS 9, and it requires you to account on a resource sale for the money that you might expect to lose. Or equally, um, you'll see there's an invest NRI write-off on one of their loans. Um, so where there's a write-off, you need to account for that. Um, so, as a result of COVID, um, you know, there have been implications, obviously, for this type of financing and um, the Department for Economy, together with the Department of Finance, um, you know, sort of, we were saying the Department of Finance and the persuasive case that they would go to Treasury to ask that this could be covered under an implications and uh, an outworking of COVID. Um, so, so as a result, the Department of Finance have got agreement from Treasury that they will cover 30, 31 million. Okay, and you see just in respect of the Invest NI, um, the, the Sustainable Poultry Litter Project, uh, it says it's an expected credit loss. Does that mean that that's not confirmed yet? Um, 
And I think the amount of it isn't confirmed. They're still working through the details of that. Like, you know, the, the best estimate is that it will be 10 million. And I think that was 10 million. So do you think they, they, they expect to get anything back? That is, you know, that's actually a write-off. Okay, and, and then just, I suppose, finally for myself, before I hand over to some other members, in relation to the bids that are being made um, for COVID support schemes, so there, there's a, a few extra ones there other than what we already know have been allocated in relation to company directors and tourism and hospitality. Um, but we obviously have heard over the course of the past number of months from um, groups who are still excluded from some of those schemes. Is there any uh, consideration being given to additional schemes given the amount of funding that is potentially still available at the centre um, in respect of COVID um, allocations? So, for example, um, the, the newly self-employed scheme was obviously extended there last week to cover um, those who became self-employed more recently and potentially had um, less than 50% of their income from being self-employed. But there is still a gap in respect of those who became self-employed late in 18-19 financial year and also for those who became self-employed this year who have, have not been able to access any um, additional support. Is there any consideration being given to the, the likes of those in respect of schemes? Um, and also we know that taxi drivers and coach operators haven't been able to access Part B of the CRBSS so far because they're they're not considered um, eligible for that. Although they are very clearly in the supply chain of businesses that have been um, forced to close under the restrictions. So has any um, consideration been given to additional supports? Um, I think in, in terms of any additional schemes or additional supports, um, I I prefer the policy area could maybe get back to you on that. You know, sort of that hasn't been covered in terms of the work that we have done for January monitoring. Um, so I think just to give you a more complete and fuller answer, it would be better if um, somebody from that business area could come back to you on that. I appreciate that, Sharon. Thank you. Um, Gary. Um, thanks, Chair, and thanks, uh, Sharon, for, um, for for your uh, presentation. It was very useful. I, I suppose, uh, sorry to go back to it, but it's to go back to this uh, AMA, or annually managed expenditure. Um, initially, the Minister for the Economy put in a bid for um, £160 million. Um, it was back in November, whenever the finance minister had written out to his colleagues, 169 million for the high street voucher scheme. Um, she received 95 million, uh, and they were developing. Uh, well, I'm assuming they were developing a scheme on that basis, and, and you know it is important that. Um, and I and I recognise why the scheme has had to be held off because it would be very foolish at this minute in time to uh, roll out a voucher scheme when you know the town and city centres are all shut. Uh, so we need to make sure we time that right. But I suppose it's just it's interesting in terms of you'd say I suppose it's a political will. The difficulty being the Department for Economy clearly feels that um, the, the the bid for the 140 million they must feel that that's very much necessary to have a very effective scheme and to have the maximum impact. You know, do you think the Department for Finance uh, will uh, take that approach when putting it forward to the executive or? You know, is it solely an executive decision, or can the minister for finance decide? No, you know, I'm not willing to do that, and and, and I suppose stop that from going to the executive table. 
Um, Darling, thank you. I mean, you are right. The Department for Economy does consider that this scheme would really um, give a good economic impact um, to the whole economy through the high street that the scheme is taken forward. Um, the Minister you know, is committed to seeking additional funding for it. Um, in terms of mechanics of that, um, you know, I think this is something that's been Thanks for that, and I, I obviously don't envy uh, the decisions of some of the executive ministers because they all uh, come with their various priorities, and everybody has their own ideas. Because uh, some people will feel that you know, the high street voucher scheme may not have the impact that it would have. I think that um, many people, I can only go from some of the contacts that I've had from constituents, uh, both from the business perspective and from the individual, they're really, I suppose, looking forward to it, uh, all for various different reasons. But I think. Uh, the High Street would very much uh, welcome it as well. Uh, if we just go on, uh, in, in Appendix 3 and Table 2, it talks about uh, Dell ring-fenced COVID-reduced requirements. Uh, and there's a number of schemes now, I think it totals about, you know, well, four, well three or four million. Uh, it talks about, you know, new apprenticeship initiatives, re retain your apprentice and training for success. That money, so, so that money has been handed back. Is that, I'm assuming that's, it's saying, COVID, just, but I'm assuming is that because they just couldn't do it because of the restrictions? Is that the reason why the money's been handed back? Yeah, absolutely. It's because of the restrictions. Um, because um, for, for some of those, um, the, for existing apprenticeships, um, the, those um, initiatives there to encourage employers to bring existing uh, apprentices back. Um, but because of the restrictions, those apprentices are furloughed now. And also, there's one there about um, new apprenticeships. Um, and, and obviously, just because of the restrictions, that hasn't been possible. Okay, no thanks for that. I think that you know, going forward, it is going to be very difficult to manage the pressures that we have, deal with COVID, but also, I suppose, look forward to the future because you know we're all having conversations around city deals and the future fund, and you know, moving towards some of the things that we we, we should have been, I suppose, on the ground and rolling at this stage. So, uh, it's a fine balance to try and manage. Um, what hasn't been able to happen this year allowed to happen next year but also allow for those new things so it's a very difficult task but thanks for providing uh, some information today I much appreciate it thank you thanks Gary um, Stuart can I bring oh. can I bring Stuart into the spotlight please <coughs> okay thank you uh, apologies if my donation uh, technology problem this morning uh, just didn't quite catch it again to your question. But just in, in, in broad terms, um, well, I appreciate and you've explained to Gary, for example, I need for apprenticeship money for the return. Um, and that's, that's not a natural given the circumstances that we're in, but really qualified for me to do two things. First of all, at the end of January, um, what the total surrender for the department may. Uh, and secondly, for you to expect this to be in terms of the final surrender by the end of the year. Yes, 
Thanks very much uh, for your presentation. Uh, in relation to Appendix 3, the Dale Ring Fenced uh, Schemes, can we just talk, talk about a number of those, possibly, please? Um, the company directors um, is has been launched. H has there any money paid out on, on that scheme yet? The company directors? Yeah. So you're predicting uh, forty million for that? Is that right? I suppose yes. that's the upper limit. The upper limit on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. The hotel sector is something I've been pushing on for a long time. Hotels have been lying vacant for now for virtually all of last year, and are under immense pressure. Do they come under this tourism and hospitality scheme? Or is there a separate bid for that? The tourism and hospitality scheme, that is the bid that has been increased to 25.5 million, and that would then cover the hotel sector. Has that been approved by, by finance then? No, it's going forward in this January monitoring, so it's something to be approved. Okay. The wet pubs has been approved, we are all aware of that just very recently. Um, the recently self-employed scheme, has that been approved? Yes, yes, that money has been approved, so we have no bid requirement there. Right, right. My next point is the CRBSS scheme. Now that, that's extended out to cover the existing lockdown period. Does your budget figure of 47 million, does that cover that extension, which really will be, a, I suppose, another reissue of checks to, do, to basically the same people? Is that, does that cover all of that? Yes, yes, that figure covers us up to the 6th of February. Up to where, sorry? Up to the 6th of February. 
Of February, which isn't long, yeah, just a few weeks. Yeah. And the bed and breakfast scheme is something I've been pushing for as well. That's still not approved, is that right? No, that, that is approved. Is um, it? So we have no bed requirement there. Yeah. The, 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 bed, the bed is approved, and I'm not sure whether this is the actual scheme. Sorry, it's the actual scheme, yes. Yeah. They have been approved? Yeah, it has. Okay. I think there are issues of. Are you aware of issues about getting the mechanism right in, in delivery of that scheme? Is that right? So it doesn't have to be. Are you aware of that? I'm, I mean, there is a policy area developing these schemes, so um, you know, I, I'm not close to the detail of where they are in terms of that specific development, but you know, we can get somebody to come back to you on that. No, yeah, if, I understand. To be fair, it's not, these are not mani managing that scheme as such, are you? Yeah. No. Um, Right, you talked about tourism and I returned funds briefly. Could you just elaborate a bit more on that, please? Funds that have yes. been returned. Certainly. So the biggest amount that has been returned um, from tourism and I is ten million financial transaction capital, and that was where we had secured money at the client that's developing um, a new cruise tourist attraction and they couldn't get um, finance from the private sector because of COVID. But as time has gone on, um, and being just um, there in January, um, the client has now been able to deal all finance from the private sector, so there's no need um, for the public sector to provide that 10 million volumes. Um, the other area where tourism has turned money is in their holidays at home voucher scheme and again it's very very similar the reasons um you know to the high street um stimulus scheme where it just wouldn't be appropriate um to start to run that scheme you know hotels are closed and um just suppose the time is not right and we're hoping i suppose to get a, a better buy for up in terms of the economic stimulus um is that scheme is taken forward early next year um, so there are the two main items. I think it was another two hundred and fifty thousand that was returned in terms of the marketing budget, but even that was small by comparison to the other areas. Okay, great. Thanks very much for that. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Gordon. Um, John Stewart. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks, Joanna, for um, the information and presentation so far. Um, just to return, firstly, to the voucher scheme. Sorry to cover old ground. Um, it was obviously talked about, and while there was a little bit of negativity, I think overall, every party was supportive of it, and the business sector, particularly the independent sector and retail, were very, very welcoming of that. And it was really seen as, as part of a linchpin, I suppose, of economic recovery. And while I'm sympathetic, I suppose, now that it can't be ruled out, given the climate that we're in, I just listened to the language and even the conversation about we might have to look at other potential opportunities for economic stimulus instead of that. Is that still part of the linchpin of economic recovery for the department? Um, and given the uncertainty about what financial money will be there, are you going to put a package in place that will be able to be ruled out regardless if you get the full amount or slightly less? So I think um, just... To be clear, in terms of um, other economic stimulus, you know, we have made bids in January monitoring round that um, would support the economy of the money we spent by the end of March. The issue with the high street voucher scheme is it really needs to fall into next year. Um, so, so, so that's what um, you know, we have 
expand on and in terms of that the amount that we I mean if, if we don't you know if we're not allocated 140 million next year the executive decide there are other priorities and you know they can't give us the full 140 million then the scheme will be designed around fitting the budget that's available. Okay. Um, so it does sign from that that there's still a strong will in the department to see this scheme rolled out, and I think we'll betide any party that was to go against that in the executive and not support that scheme. So with that in mind, I think I'd be very confident there would be. I'd like to see it directed towards independent retail, particularly in those sectors that would be most affected. But given now that you've got that time, um, and hopefully in the next couple of months we'll see um, the infection rate subside and a return to normality, can we get assurances then that this scheme will be ready to rock? The day that it's funded, because when we talk, when we heard from the minister back in October, November, there was even talk that this could be ruled out in early January. Um, situations have changed. We are where we are, but you know, I think there's a frustration that we hear about these schemes, and then when it comes to it, we have to wait another three, four, five months to see them ruled out. So will this be ready to, to go? Well, I think. I mean, as I said before, I'm not working on a policy team, so I appreciate that. To commit someone to something that isn't within my area. <laughs> But, you know, we do have a team working on this, okay. and there is uh, absolute will um, mm -hmm. to take it forward. And I think you, you quite rightly have referred to some schemes that have maybe taken um, a bit longer to um, mobilise. And I think the benefit here is that we actually have, you know, sometimes the schemes are announced and then the detail needs to be worked out, whereas with this one, we do have a team, they are working on it. Okay. And, you know, and uh, I do know that, you know, we Okay, that's good to hear. I look forward to seeing that. Talking about another scheme that has been delayed, though, and that's that of the directors, um, so the company director support scheme. We heard back in October, November, gave the minister that potentially that could have been ruled out before Christmas. Um, it's now January. I appreciate people were maybe off over Christmas, but where are we with getting that out? If it's much more delayed, I mean, is that going to be impacted in the budget if we head towards the end of the financial year and the money hasn't been paid out, for example? So is is that nearing completion? Because people are asking me, and I'm sure other elected reps on a daily basis, where that is. I think, um, you know, again, look, it's for the policy. I don't want to keep I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> to put that up online. Um, but, you know, I can give you a bit of background as to where I think it is. Um, I think the Alaska scheme, that certainly there's been a lot of work done on. The fact that, um, you know, we are bidding for it here in the January market, certainly. Um, you know, we believe that this scheme will be launched and money will be paid out by, by the end of March. So, you know, that's our signal that yes, we do believe. Um, you know, but, but, but in terms of an actual launch date for that, um, you know, that's not within my remit. Okay. I'll maybe give a question then, <laughs> because of my apologies, I appreciate some of this is policy and there is that overlap. Yes, One hopefully sorry. that you can answer, and that was what I think Stuart Dixon was trying to talk about, but we couldn't really hear him. And that would be that it would be lamentable if, if we saw a sum in excess of £110 million returned unspent where it could have been rolled out to areas in need. And we talk about excluded businesses and businesses that haven't been able to avail of that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about even the 105 million, in what way is that ring fenced and how could that not be used to top up, for example, or broaden the self-employment scheme, um, the company director scheme, the CRBS part uh, part B? Uh, I just can't get, really get my head around that. I'm sure the public can't sure. about how we hand back a whack without yeah. actually spending it what we need to. Yeah, so whatever the money is allocated in the long run, it's very tightly ring fenced. So, for instance, the High Street Voucher Scheme could only be spent on the High Street Voucher Scheme 
Um, so we do not have, within the Department for Economy, we do not have the ability to say, well, do you know what, um, we know we're going to understand there. I mean, these other are very pressing and have very real pressures. Um, so we don't have the ability where funding is red fenced like that. The company director scheme is red fenced to company directors. Um, you know, all those individual schemes are red fenced amounts only for those schemes. So we cannot take the decision to simply move money around. Um, and that is, um, you know, what we have been talking to the Department of Finance about and what our minister has also raised um, to say, you know, there needs to be some flexibility. And I, you know, I totally understand that um, the exec, it's the executive needs to decide where priorities are. Um, but, you know, some of those schemes, so for instance, if you take tourism as an example, you know, we might have several big best spots for tourism. Um, I suppose what we're asking for is the flexibility where it, one tourism scheme was going to overspend and we could usefully reallocate um, and understand some tourism, you know, could have flexibility to do that. But as we said at the minute, we don't have that flexibility. And I suppose my concern would be, you know, January monitoring is really the last opportunity to, um, you know, sort out um, the, the, the budget. And um, so, so there wouldn't be an opportunity beyond this to reallocate. Um, so if we were understanding somewhere, then, you know, that money um, would be unutilised at the year end. Yeah. Uh, you make a really valid point about that, and, and the rule. And I think it was actually our economy committee colleague John O'Dowd. I don't know if he's still on the line, but I think back to maybe May or June when he talked about throwing the rule book in the bin for the duration of COVID nineteen. And perhaps there's never a truer word spoke when it comes to the ring fencing of money. I think it would be deeply frustrating, and I can see the sense of frustration in your voice about that. If we can't get the situation where we can allow flexibility in the spending rather than handing back the treasury and that money being lost, we're in an economic war footing. And I think it's it's essential that we be able to spend this money where it can be directed fastest in the current financial year. So whatever needs to be done, and maybe it can be highlighted, we, we lobby executive colleagues or whoever needs to do that to start ticking these boxes to make this happen. But thank you. Thanks. Um, so can I just go back to the the, the Amy money and the, the high street voucher thing again? Um, apologies for that, but <laughs> I, I'm just trying to understand that I'm not an accountant, so um, the technicalities of it are maybe a wee bit beyond me. But see, in terms of the bid that's made, the $140 million, um, and it says in, in the, the pack that um, the scheme announcement in the current financial year will create an obligation requiring provision in the, the next financial year. Um, so, in terms of that, the conversations that there's been had with, with the audit office in the relation to the the, um, the accounting for that, why can it not be, you know, if it's created the obligation for the next financial year, why can it not be loaded up as such and put on and used next financial year? Um, Joanna, do you want to pick this up? Yeah. Basically, it's um, whenever you create the expectation, it's where it falls from in the government accounting actually, because a provision for government accounting, so that's the only version that scores an AMI. When you actually make the physical payment from a budgeting perspective, that scores in what we refer to as resource bail next year, and the resource bail is what we would need next year to make the payments. 
I know it, it is really confusing, it's a very government accountant uh, that that is, but it's basically when you make uh, that commitment, it scores an Amy, when you actually make the payment or it, you know, it actually happens, the event actually happens, that's when you need the RDL, which is what we would be asking the executive for in bid. Okay, so if you are making a bid for Amy now for the next financial year, is Amy in this financial year, but it's Dell in this financial year, and our Dell in the next financial year. So, and Amy allows it to be shown in our accounts this financial year as a provision because we have made a commitment, and the our Dell allows us to make the actual payment in the next financial year. Okay, so is that like a speculative bid to an extent in terms of that for this financial year? No, there are two, two separate budget pots, but basically your aiming bid for this is non-cash. The RKL is the cash bid for some other aiming bid that you would see on the committee would be actually cash related. So if, another example would be if you had a, a court case and you we're going to, you know, you were going to lose, it was more probable that you were going to lose and it was going to be large damages. You would provide for that in your accounts under EMI and then when the payment was finalised and you were making the payment, it would be in our day in the next financial year. That's the best that I could use of an everyday sort of Okay, pattern. so can I just ask why does it need to be made in this budget year if it's for the next financial year, why did it have to be reflected in this year's um, budget? under accounting regulations, you would need to make this a provision because if your intention is or you launched the scheme prior to the 31st of March, then you need to show that in your financial accounts. Okay. Would it be possible for you to share that the, the accounting rules around that with the committee just yes. so that we can get a proper understanding of that? Okay. Yes. Thank you. Um, Sinead? Can we bring Sinead in? To Thank you. So, um, thank you very much uh, for your detail. Um, Uh, and that's the students who are um, 
actually experience and lot of effort on this amount that those daily paying for a company who have their delivery time and to protect the and private sector, the universities themselves have had some movement with the whole of residents and um, and, and um, you know accommodation under there. We are under there uh, as consulted both the private sector hasn't any consideration being given at all to make any inroads in how both transgender population and this
Thank you, Sinead. Um, I think that, that's, that's all of our, our questions for now. And sure, if there's anything additional, we can send it through to yourselves, if that would be okay with you. Yes, that's perfect. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. So, Chair, um, it, it might be useful to, to write to the Minister, FMDFM and the Finance Minister, just about the issue of ring fencing. It, it does seem to have come up a lot. Uh, and just to seek clarity about how ring fencing around COVID um, pot-funded schemes works, because what officials were, were saying was it, it's a, a very definite, that's COVID scheme X, therefore it can only be spent on that, and that's how the ring fencing works. Whereas you might have a shortfall in COVID scheme Y, but you cannot move COVID scheme X into it. It's just maybe to get a better understanding of whether there's any possibility of flexibility around that for that COVID funding, um, if members are content just to get that clarity. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. I don't know what it was, but I'll agree. <laughs> okay. Clarity around ring fencing. Oh yes, that would be helpful. Be nice to know who we need to lobby. I mean, what pr what process needs to be changed to, to get that flexibility? Okay, so members of content will move on to um, matters arising, and there's a fair few of them. So, yes. Um, we'll try and get through them. Um, Six point one then, page twenty nine of your pack is a statement from the minister in relation to ESF. Minister stated that DFE has received 100 million per annum across structural and competitive funds over the lifetime of these programmes. This is from when the Minister was in with the committee on the 16th and we had asked for just her remarks so that we could get an understanding of the figures. Um, the Minister has stated all of the current ERDF and ESF budget is currently committed to projects and continue to be spent until exhausted. ESF projects have currently funded in case until March 2022 and are managed by DfE um, directly. The spending review indicated an allocation of 220 million would be made available across the UK as a replacement for structural funds and that amounts to an allocation of 11 million for um, us here in the north, which is um, there has also been no clarity around activities and criteria. So this is obviously something that we've discussed there now. Um, and it's something that we'll continue to raise, and I'm sure um, other ministers and executives will be doing so as well in terms of um, discussions with the British government. So it's to note, unless there's any comments. Thank you. Um, 30, then, or sorry, uh, 6.2, page 30 of your pack, there is a ministerial response in relation to maintaining and developing air connectivity. It is in response to um, a letter that we'd written to the minister following our meeting with the um, representatives of the airports on the 8th of December. Um, Minister's highlighted her role in securing two million to fund marketing support to be delivered by Tourism Ireland. The Minister notes that under the protocol, the North will remain aligned to EU rules for customs, VAT and excise while remaining part of the UK customs territory. This means the North will not be able to avail of duty-free um, for movements between here and Britain and also between here and the EU. The Minister has written to the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster on the 30th of November in relation to concerns. Uh, in relation to this, um, the Minister also agrees that removal of APD will be a considerable boost to the local economy and that APD is an unfair tax that should be addressed at a, a national level. So the Minister has also made representations to the British Government on those matters. Um, again, it's to note unless members have any. Well, thanks, Chair. Um, does this, can this be shared with 
most people we met. Yes, absolutely. I know it's, it's been discussed, we'll but I think that. it would be yeah, useful maybe send to them just in terms of follow-up. Can we go ahead and do that? Mm-hmm. Just since that last meeting as well, Chair, with the airports, is there any update on any of those routes that were lost to Flybe? I know some have been replaced by Logan Air and things. Any updates on any new ones? We, new haven't had, we, we get a, a regular update from the airports. Nothing has come through subsequent to that meeting. Okay. I suspect that's because, been because of the Christmas period. So I would hope that those would start coming through sort of this week, next week. As soon as we get anything, we let members know. There's also talk with the potential for Fly B to make a comeback. I think some reason talk of buying it. Whether yeah, someone or... may now have acquired rights to the name. Yeah, I don't know what the um, are. There was some routes. talk about, um, I'm not, not sure how it would work, but but a limited route network okay. under that name again. So Let's keep an eye, we'll keep an eye on that one. Um... 6.3 then, page 32 of your pack. Um, there's a response from the Minister about the student loan company application process. We had agreed to write to the Minister about the arrangements for Irish passport holders. The Minister stated there's an arrangement between the student loans company and HMPO where the UK passport holders are able to submit their passport details on application forms rather than including their original passport documents. Um, it extends only to UK passport holders and non-UK passport holders may continue to provide original passport, um, birth certificate, adoption certificate, etc. In, in the normal way. The Minister has indicated that the Department's Equality Unit has stated that there's no Section 75 implications and the facility has been introduced to allow technology to speed up processing applications where applicable. Um, so unless anybody has any additional comments. Yeah, go ahead, John. I'm losing signs, I'm not sure if it's from my side or your side, but in regards to this matter, I'm a number of areas, two areas of concern. One, I don't think there's anything to stop uh, the, the use of the Irish passport or seeking permission from uh, the Dublin government in relation to our access to the Dublin government in relation to the use of the Irish passport. And secondly, I would like to see the quality speaking exercise that was carried out in regards, which allows the department to say that there's no equality issues in, the, in, the, in regards to this matter. Uh, I can copy of any quality screening exercise, please. We can ask for that, Chair. Okay. Mm-hmm. Members of mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on then to 6.4 at page 34 of your pack is a response from the Minister in relation to the Student Hardship Fund. And the committee agreed to write to the Minister about the Student Hardship Fund asking that the criteria for the fund be relaxed and the application process simplified. The Minister has indicated that the process is already minimal and cannot be reduced further. Um, if members have looked at the um, supporting documentation, there are still a considerable number of hoops for students to, to go through in relation to being able to access this money. And in the, the guidance from the department, it contains stuff like um, there needing to be counselling on money management to ensure that the assistance uh, provided from support funds is not wasted. <coughs> I don't think that those things are particularly appropriate in the current context. Yeah, I think that that's one of the issues that potentially the, the system was designed um, with a number of different kind of contexts in mind around uh, young people maybe not having experience in money management and so on, and it, it isn't really um, therefore recast for COVID. Um, so it, it, it depends on how members want to take that forward. Um, sure. Go ahead, John. Um, I think there's a point in this in terms of 
not all students are young people. So students come from all the three of these uh, background. And one of the presentations that we was at the students meeting pre-Christmas, there was a number of students who were in relationships and children were running family budget, running family home, but they were more than capable of running budgets. But the thing that concerns me with this is this, pre-Christmas there was around 4 million pounds in this play. Uh, and given the amount of correspondence, we're already around the day about the hardships people are facing, it would appear that the fund isn't as accessible, accessible as it should be for students. And one of the questions that I asked during the last presentation was if the student hardship fund is not standing with them once a year, is it lost? Then we'll find that out as well. Thank you. Thanks, John. Sorry, can, can I come in there as well? Go ahead, Sinead. Sure. Yeah, uh, in relation to the student hardship fund, uh, I would uh, agree with what uh, John was saying there. There wouldn't be any issues in and around that world, and kind of shouldn't really address any of those. However, um, in relation to student hardship, we know students are paying out for accommodation, their time the accommodation and contracts with um, private sector. Uh, and, and they're not listening to their parents. These students don't have this money. They have no ability to make this money. They have no ability to earn this cash in order to pay it. And yet, um, there is no help or support mechanism in order for to, to subsidise um, either their rent or to get them released from these uh, from these contracts, these leasing contracts. And I really do think that you know that's where the student hardship is actually at, uh, and it's for all students. They shouldn't be paying for accommodation if they can't use at this particular time. And I'm not even going near these either because you know some of them are. Chair, we, we do um, Chair, there's there's also the, 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 the very difficult and core issue about private contracts um, between students and landlords. The, the department isn't in a position to interfere there. You you would have to seek um, to legislate around intervening on that, and I'm not entirely sure that the the power lies um, with the department to be able to do that. But it's something we can explore. 
but as I say, there's, there's an item further on. It might give members a bit more um, background to on, on what the universities are doing as well. We have a few papers in there. Okay, so it's 6.5 then, page 36 um, of your package. There's a response from the department about legislation monitoring dashboards. Um, sorry, the legislation monitoring yeah. dashboard for the energy SR. So it was issues that were raised at the um, meeting on the 16th when the minister and the permanent secretary were here about um, legislation pertaining to um, EU exit. So the response indicates that issues are more likely to be operational than legislative and further technical dialogue um, is required. So it's to note and we'll probably get an update in relation to the yeah. Brexit issues. If it's Brexit. comfort, Chair, everything is still working. And, and the, the, the agreements that cover everything still working, it's just the technical discussion about how you put that on paper and, and technical detail is still to be done. But there, there doesn't seem to be any issue around everyone accepting it still needs to work. Yeah. Yep. Great. Okay. Um, 6.6 .6 then, page 37 of your pack. There's a response from the Department about business support scheme. Um, at our meeting on the 25th of November, we discussed the business support schemes and requested an update about how much has been paid on it under Part A and Part B. Obviously, these figures have moved yeah, on considerably at this point. Um, and we also asked up for an update about the newly self-employed scheme. So these um, responses are a little bit out of date. Um, so, Chair, what we've had subsequently from the department actually um, gives us a more recent picture. But obviously, because this was a response, we needed to bring it to committee. But um, it, it's. It was drafted, I think, before um, Christmas, so it's it's yeah. really out of date. I think the, the, the date on it's the 13th of December. Yeah, it's, it's very so, much out um, of date. If members are content to note. Chair, I think we would, yeah. I think we welcome the fact as well that the CRBSS scheme is, um, is following through on the previous applicants, I think, and that has been very positive that people don't have to reapply again. I think that has been good. And I note the point as well about having a, um, a letter of support there from your accountant. It's not uh, necessary, but it's, it's advisable, really. Mm. So I got it does help to speed up the process, yeah. and I think that's good. And, you know, it clarifies that, at least. Some people were getting upset because they had to go and do that, and we appreciate, obviously, it could be a cost, but it does help to, you know, to, to undermine or <laughs> underline their, their business. and. Gives it further, you know, verification that they uh, have a business and that it's, you know, it's worthy of support. So I think we we welcome all those points of clarification. The taxi issue still seems to be rattling on, and I'm sure you're all aware of that. Yeah. Um, they got that, and someone have got the money. We still have some people still haven't got it. I've had constituents on to me this week about just the £1,500 that they're expecting, which isn't a lot of money. Some of them still haven't received that money, which I think is is not acceptable. And um, then they keep being referred to self-employed income support scheme, which does, um, is, I suppose, applicable to a number of them, but a number of them isn't. And then there was this problem they have with the insurance, where they cancelled the insurance because they had no business, or little or none, then they were not eligible. So there are still outstanding issues there that need to be addressed by the Department of Infrastructure. So I think we should Maybe perhaps go back to the Department of Infrastructure and trying to get some more clarification on that issue. And urge the need to, to get the payments out for those outstanding cases for the, the £1,500, which I understand was mainly for 
meeting COVID requirements. Um, and also, Peter, if we could ask about the new self-employed scheme, because the closing date extended to the 5th of February. Yes. We would hope that people who've already applied wouldn't have to wait until so the closing the date would to get start. paid. It's so probably worth checking to see how that's going to work. that particular point as well. Chair, can I just comment on a couple of the points? Gordon's right about it's great to see that scheme extended under the Invest in ICBRSS scheme, both parts A and parts B. Still getting a lot of questions about when that payment's going to be made for those that have already been successful. In theory, it should just be a, a transaction. There's no processing involved because they've already met the criteria. So <coughs> it would be nice if a, if a press release could come out from Invest in the department to say, don't worry, it's coming, rather than us having to front that up and try and get the answers because to date, there aren't any. I know from contact and invest about an application recently they also highlighted some of those who are potentially in part b previously mm. are maybe now eligible for right. the lrss oh yeah, yeah. So they, they need to, i think there needs to be a wee bit of communication mm -hmm. there between invest to and the applicants and yeah. the to make sure that people are mm -hmm. being put over to the scheme that they're eligible for yeah, I think there's there's a lot of confusion, and that's the feedback we're getting um, from from stakeholders as well. Is, is more clarity and more detailed communication on how that's going to work? Because people are confused where they may have applied, as you said, to one scheme initially, and now they're actually eligible for another. Um, so yeah, we can we can take that up with the department about getting getting more publicity. Could we ask that question to you then when that second tranche will be paid if they have met the criteria? Give us a firm date, even a period of dates where they'll be processing the payments. Um, certainly it's good that it's been, if you if you weren't eligible for another grant, say the LRSS, and you've been pushed towards now Part A, they will backdate that, which yeah. I don't think which yeah. was, a, was a real concern. So that's, yeah, It'd be that's nice to get some clarity on that. And Gordon's also right about the letter of accountant. I did an application for a chap yesterday who wasn't really computer literate, and the first response you get is, please provide a letter from your accountant. Now, if you read in the detail quite far down, it's not essential, but it's quite clear that obligation will be prioritised if the letter from the accountant comes in. Um, just so happened that he did. I, again, if I had to tidy it up for him. So a lot of people in a lot of those sectors that that's targeting just don't have accountants because of the turnover that they're on. Um, I do understand, though, there has been some progress on people being able to get, um, if you like, identification that they are a genuine claimant through HMRC um, where apparently you can you can contact them now and they're willing to give you the sorts of paperwork you need for because I know a lot of people maybe did have paperwork they did have the numbers but they, they they've lost them along the way somewhere so they will supply that and I know excluded and I are, are working with that and getting that information out across their members but yes the accountants letter has been an ongoing issue um, and does speed up but it's an essential, but it does make a difference, and that's... Just here on that, HMRC, I understand that, it, yes, they will do it on an individual basis for yes. people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But they're it's, not looking at it... In no, they won't do it as a collective. It's, no, they won't work to do it for the Department of the Economy. Yeah. It has to be the individuals that make, the, make the approach on it, but they are, I understand, now wanting to give the information. Thanks, Chair. GDPR.
Chair, it was just to say that I think that that letter is important and I fully support the point that we need clarity and we need communication. What I would suggest is that that goes to a number of ministers um, on the basis that uh, I, I think that this applies to all of the schemes and I think you know when we speak to constituents there's a lot of uncertainty as to what exact scheme now do they fall under and the localised restriction support scheme uh, was automatically um, extended uh, to, to people but I, there were a lot of people applying again and we get word back then from the Department for Finance to say no don't do that uh, because you will then come up with a duplication on the system so those types of communication pieces uh, as I say, everybody's trying their best behind the scenes, but it's just making sure that people know uh, what to do and when. But also, when an initial email comes out to confirm that somebody has applied, it would do no harm, maybe for a follow-up email, to say, you know, we're still working on your application. Yeah. Uh, you know, and even if it is a, a bulk email to, to all of those people, just to say, look, we're still working on your application. Because a lot of people, like even today, as I'm sitting here, there's people coming on and saying, you know, we've heard nothing since uh, we initially applied. Uh, and we I think that if we had processed. a date, yeah. if we had a time frame to say, look, you know, it will be out by the end of the week, or uh, as was with the, the localised restriction support scheme. So I think at that point, as I say, has been well made. We'll take that up, Chair. I, yeah, I, I would come in there and I would agree with, with Sky. There's a lot of confusion out there uh, among people, and I know there, um, there, there, there's a desire not to have double funding. Uh, in places, but, but not all of the schemes are like, for example, the taxi scheme. To me, that is just a scheme that is paying for um, overheads that are incurred as a result of being COVID compliance. They're not actually getting funding for the loss of their business, which um, I believe that they should be, that they should be entitled to apply for part um, B, and that was the, the reason the effort that we were writing to the, the department to see if they could widen that eligibility criteria to include um, that sector, because literally their businesses have to wind out um, and, and their ability to deliver a service to people, you know, it, it has gone. Um, the demand side is gone. So, you know, that, that scheme was open for the supply chain, and, and yet that sector was rolled out by it. And, and the, the, the one that's been operated by the Department of Infrastructure is not, it, it's not uh, to recompense the taxi drivers for the loss of their business at all. It's for the cost of the gold compliant. It's operational rather than uh, loss of business. Yeah, I know, and, and as you say, Shani, we have raised that that issue in relation to their eligibility for Part B. So, um, I think something. I just don't understand why it's completely wiped out every time we raise it. You know, the money's there. We can see that there's a, a, an underspend there as well. When we look at our monitoring round, why, why not pay those that uh, that that could quite easily fall into that criteria? No, I agree, um, and we're hoping that we'll get officials in to talk to us about the support scheme, so it's something that we can take up with, with them as well. Okay, so if members are content, we'll move on to 6.7, which is page 39 of your packs. It's a response from the department um, in terms of the energy strategy bulletin, so it's to note. Um, it 6.8 then, page 44, is correspondence from the Departmental Solicitor's Office about the Retail Hospitality Tourism and Leisure Top-Up Grant. Um, it's an issue that has been raised around the uh, multiple premises. Um, so it's to note um, there, 
there's scope for ongoing legal action. Yeah, so we, to we don't want to get into that. Just um, we'll not get into a discussion on that. Six point nine then at page forty seven of your pack. There's a response from the minister for infrastructure um, in relation to our request for planning officials to brief the committee. The infrastructure Dallow has been in contact with the committee office um, and is is ready to get that organised. Yeah, good. 6.10, page 48 for PAC. There's a response from the Finance Minister um, in relation to maintaining developing air connectivity. Um, we had corresponded to him on the 18th of December um, following the engagement with the airports. So the Minister has outlined that there was um, funding allocated 7.8 million to Belfast International mm -hmm. City Airports. So again, it's to note and lesson. Chair, just again, I think it would be worth sharing that with the airport. Yep. Well, Chair, can you Bring your mic more towards you. Okay. Chair, I think it is worth noting that support was very much appreciated by the airports. I'm sure we all are aware of that, but airports are in a terrible state, running at about 20% capacity, and it's not sustainable. And you know, this extension now is, is causing them further grief and concern, and I think it's worth putting on record our. our appreciation of, of that money that was given because it is difficult. Some would argue that it's not within the remit of Stormont that we support airports, but it's vital that we do. And I think well done to those that did. And it may come up again, but I suppose it'll have to be looked at in the, in the whole round. But I think it's well, you know, very important that we, we put on record our appreciation for the support for the airports and what is a desperate time for them. And they, they're doing a good job trying to keep the business going and they provide important links and um, under most difficult circumstances and we appreciate the work of those within the airport but um, the money has been well received. Thanks Chair. Thanks Gordon. Um, 6.11 then, page 50 of your pack, there's correspondence from the Finance Minister um, on, in relation to the budget um, and we already discussed that earlier on so just to note. Um, then there are a number of items that we can deal with together, 6, 12, 13, 14 and 17. So that's at page um, 51 of your pack, 52, 54 and 24 of our table papers. So uh, there's a response from Lord Canoole regarding EU funding. There is a response from the Scottish Parliament's convener of the Finance and Constitution. Um, committee in relation to the Shared Prosperity Fund. There is a response from the Chair of the Finance Committee in the Welsh Parliament on in relation to the Shared Prosperity Fund. Um, so again, it's all for the member. Oh, sorry. And then there is a one for the Minister for State for the North on the Shared Prosperity Fund. That's page 24 of your table papers. So um, obviously, it's something that we have raised on a number of occasions, and probably will be looking a further update on. Chair, essentially, if I can sum it up, as every um, counterpart committee we've contacted shares the same concern um, at the lack of detail around how EU funding particularly will be replaced, but also the workings of the, the Shared Prosperity Fund itself. So there's uh, our, our sister committees in um, Westminster putting a lot of pressure on uh, UK government over that. Just for clarity, if nothing else, the Minister's already flagged up herself to committee that the lack of um, detail and replacement, particularly of EU funding, will cause problems. Uh, and while there's a, a commitment for the quantum of the money that EU funding would have provided, there, there's no specifics around how that will work. 
on a, a regional basis and so on. So there's a lot of push um, being applied on the, the UK government to try and clarify that. Okay, so moving on then, 6.15, um, page 56 of your packs, correspondence from Fermanagh and Oma District Council in relation to pod Project Stratum. Um, we obviously had heard from the Chief Executive um, of Fermanagh and Oma Council and sought some um, clarification on her remarks. So it's for members to note, and I'm sure we'll be back to deal with Project Stratum at some point in the near future. Um, 6.16 at page 65 of your pack, there's a response from the Competition and Market Authority in relation to the LPG market. Um, the CMA has made recommendations to the part department on this issue in respect of the new energy strategy. Um, I thought it was a useful response, so if members um, are content to note for now. 6.18 then, page 28 of um, table papers, the departmental response on the localised restriction support scheme. Um, it's in relation to a uh, query from an individual. So if members are content um, that I assume we'll share that. Yes, Chair, we, we share that back to the, the correspondence. Okay, so that's all of the matters arising. Now we're moving to item number seven, which is the situation regarding further and higher education in the context of um, the new restrictions or the current restrictions. Um, so there are responses we had asked last week to get some feedback from the, the various stakeholders, the universities, colleges um, and unions. Um, I think we have some responses back so far. Yeah, we, we, the time scale we were giving was very, very short, yes. Chair, so we, we kind of got what we could. And we appreciate those that have responded and um, the invitation is open to the others yeah, that want absolutely. to. Um, so, first of all, page 81 of your pack, there's correspondence um, from an individual about BTEC exams. Then, page 82, there is uh, correspondence asking <laughs> why the um, further education colleges remain open. Then, at page 30 of table papers, there's a statement from the Minister um, about on urging vocational learners to stay focused on their futures. Page 32 of the table papers, statement from the Minister in relation to the upcoming vocational qualifications, exams and assessments. And then, page 33 of table papers, correspondence from the Department um, about the additional restrictions and the implica implications for higher level apprenticeships. And then, page 34 of table papers, there is similar correspondence in relation to the implications for training for success and apprenticeships ni page 35 of table papers there's an update from queens and then <coughs> at page 39 there's an update from uu so there's a number of issues um and it has already come up in in the terms of our discussion around the student support fund yeah. about the various issues that there are for both students in universities and students in colleges um, members have already discussed some of those in terms of the pressure that they're on students financially in relation to being stuck in um, contracts for private rental or um, other university contracts. Um, and both Queen's and Ulster have indicated, Queen's says that they're extending their rental quality to the end of January. And um, UU, it seems to be on a more ad hoc basis. Um, they, they didn't have as many um, students in accommodation under their control, oh, so yeah. theirs was sort of more, more easy to take forward and solve. Um, and in terms of the question about the FE colleges opening, um, just remind members that in cases where there's digital poverty, um, the FE colleges undertook to be able to make um, laptops and so on available on site where needed for uh, young people. And as officials talked about earlier, where um, 
where um, hands-on classes need to take place and can be done so safely they are still in some cases being facilitated whereas uh, in others you know BTECs have been so it's not that they're they're all fully open and flinging their doors open to everyone. There are legitimate reasons, and we've had clarification on those from any openings, um, and clarification from the universities about how semester two will go ahead online. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it, uh, there was some announcement this week from Student Roost, which also has um, accommodation in Belfast, I think only in Belfast, where they are giving people a rental holiday, but it's for this semester they have been quite inflexible in relation to last semester and I think that the flexibility has been introduced is because they're kind of an English provider and the restrictions have been introduced in England as well whereby we had restrictions in place last semester where people were being asked to be online and I think we, if the committee agreed, should write to student roost and ask for some flexibility for students here um, for last semester as well. Um, I think that's, you know, that that's only fair obviously there are a number of issues in, in the context of, of um, student issues and Peter you have referred to the FE ones it would maybe just be useful if we could get some feedback from unions as well in relation to that issue about you know on-site provision continuing and hopefully there has been engagement and consultation with unions in respect of that um, I think John O'Dowd was looking in first of all in relation to BTACs, first of all, um, there, there has been concerns expressed that there was a, a perceived lack of planning around a response to BTAC in the current COVID-19 pandemic, uh, and that there should be more preparation. Um, many students feel that they have been forgotten about in the debate about A-levels and GCSEs, uh, that they somehow fall through the cracks in, in this regard. Uh, I'm aware that there has been some mitigations put in place and obviously who has rehearsed those mm. uh, comments uh, what's happening in front or sorry, in our colleges. But I do think uh, that there needs to be further clarity around BTACs. And also, uh, on the other issue I want to raise is there's a strong possibility that the entirety of this academic year and even the next academic year starting in September will be disrupted as a result of COVID-19 and there needs to be planning put in place for that. The issue of students staying in private contacts for rental accommodation, there needs to be uh, more advice given to students, clearer advice given to students uh, around the implications of signing a contract. Uh, even in August, September of this year, uh, they may not be in a position to move into that accommodation for, for a considerable period of time. So I think there needs to be a strong uh, resource put in place for students to ensure that they're and their families so they're fully aware of the implications of signing private contracts. But uh, in, in regards to BTAX, I think there has to be uh, further clarity given on that and all the planning for the rest of this academic year in relation to BTAX and that they should be as prepared for BTAX as they are going to be for A levels. Thanks, John. Thank you. Gary? Thanks, Chair. And it's just in relation to, uh, obviously, the issue that we're talking about, but specifically, I suppose, in terms of uh, the Queen's University uh, update. Um, obviously, we're all receiving concerns from students around uh, how universities are operating, and there's a number of issues around the fees and accommodation and all of that. 
The question that I would have, and it's been raised with me many times on Sunday, is, as you'll be aware, Queen's uh, chartered a flight uh, from uh, China to uh, Belfast. Um, that arrived, uh, and it's been raised with me, and, and I share the concerns around, given the fact that so much of the learning has been done remotely, you know, can that travel be deemed at this time as essential or necessary travel? Um, we, we need to get reassurance in terms of uh, all of the uh, health and safety assessments that have been put in place in terms of uh, that travel. And, I, and I, uh, what I'm proposing is that you know, this committee writes to the Department for Health and to Queen's University and ask, you know, at a time when we are under these restrictions within our own uh, communities, is it necessary that uh, such flights are, are being chartered. Uh, you know, is the, would that be best to be done at another time, given the fact that the face-to-face -face learning is so much restricted? So I just think it's important that we get that clarity. It's going to be an issue going forward, and I think that the committee as a whole is generally accepting that normality is not going to be around for some time. Uh, and I know that, as I say, it's been, it's been raised, and I, I would like to get some clarity on it. Members content, we, we write to both and, and seek reasons for why that needed to happen and what safety was put in place. And what measures um, are there to support the students yeah. self-isolating? Because I assume they have to self-isolate for 10 days upon do, arrival. Yeah. Well, there, there was guidance. There was a further chartered flight from another location and there was guidance, I believe, issued. I, I didn't see any similar guidance issued on that particular uh, flight, that, that being said, you know, maybe it's there, but again, it goes back to the, I, I just have, would have concerns around, even if there's the self-isolating and all of that in place, it's the travel element, uh, and I think we need to get clear yeah. communication on that. Thank we need to seek clarification on those points. Sinead? Um, just back to the student archive, students um, are unable um, to get any support, you know, from the campaign benefits, for example. Um, that they can't uh, work. So there is actually no financial support for them. So I think it's incumbent upon us uh, to, to ask the department to investigate ways that they can support and fund students at this particular time uh, as well. Now, and I think that we should call on private landlords to, to issue waiver on rental at this particular time if students are unable uh, to use it. Uh, and, and yet they, they can't get out of their legal uh, contracts. Yeah, I think that, that we can do that. Sure, if, if it's helpful, if we write to the department um, asking if there are further ways they're exploring to um, provide support for students in, in the light of um, what the deputy chair had said around a lot of them, and we've, we've heard those issues before around the, the maybe the part-time jobs and so on that people did, they can't do now because those are gone. Um, and, and asking the, the department uh, whether they're undertaking any work around um, private rentals. Yeah, um, I think both of those points are, are completely fair. I know when we initially raised the issues of student hardship last year, um, the hardship fund was seen as a way to deliver it. But I, I think just given the issues we've seen with it and the scale of the problem and, and the extended nature of the issues that potentially the department needs to be looking at um, other ways of delivering uh, funding to, to students and support to students if, if required um, or, and it is going to continue to be required for the rest of at least this semester. I think the issue of private rentals, obviously we know that the, the executive has limited um, ability to deal with the issue but that doesn't um, per, or stop that 
the fact that we need to put in place that advice and guidance that John has suggested, but also, um, and I know DFC did provide advice for uh, landlords and tenants earlier in the year. I think students are a particular cohort that probably don't fall into the same um, categories as other private tenants, and, and there does need to be that bit of flexibility um, built into it. And um, if there are landlords that can put in place that flexibility, then they absolutely should be making um, provision for students to waive rent or to delay it or to give holidays. Whatever it is that can be put in place should be put in place, and I think we should be encouraging that as much as possible. Chair, I'm just thinking in terms of what's been put in place around evictions. Mm -hmm. I, I, it might be worth going back and looking at that just to see how that might be applicable to students. If I take that away and I can bring that back to committee. Chair, the other thing is we, we'll be following up on the BTEC issue as well, just to, to clarify. Um, no, it was, it was mm -hmm. Mr O'Dowd was looking to, to make sure the BTEC issue was being covered. I think, Chair, uh, just on just both of the issues that have been raised, firstly in terms of Queen's um, and the, the flight from China, um, I understand you know, the question around why was this necessary when um, overseas students are paying what they're paying? That's why Queens will say it was necessary, um, and you know that's a huge source of income uh, for the university. Um, but in terms of, as you would know, the area around the university um, is now ninety plus percent um, rented accommodation, um, largely held by sort of a very small group of private landlords. Um, I think there's an important role for advice services for students. Basically, I, I agree with what the Deputy Chair said, the moral and the decent thing to do would be to um, sort of waive people's rent if they're not able to live there. But once you've signed a contract, you've signed a contract. And I think this sort of sort of advice services being provided by the university and the students unions I think is something that's really really important to just encourage people just think and pause before you sign on to something because once you've signed it you've signed it and there's you know there's no getting out of it. Chair I suppose to just on the back of that is if, if students have greater clarity about how semester three is going to work um, if they know it's going to be online and that they know they, they aren't going to be called back to campus and won't have to rent. Mm. I, I suspect in a lot of cases Mr Stalford says they're on a, a rental agreement that lasted for the whole academic year yep. um, but there may be some way of, of heading that off and again we take that off um, with the department and the universities particularly around whether they can give that clarity to students about what might happen in semester three. We, we'll take those issues forward, Chair. Okay, thank you. Members are content um, that we've covered all of that. We'll move on to item number eight, which is our SL1 on the Biocidal Products Fees Charges Amendment EU Exit Regulations Northern Ireland 2020. There is a clerk's memo at page 84. There is correspondence from the department at page 85. The department proposes to make a statutory rule under powers conferred by paragraphs 1, 1 and 11, M1 and 6. Of Schedule 2 and Paragraph 21B of Schedule 7 to the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018. The rule is subject to the draft affirmative procedure before the Assembly. The purpose of the rule is to amend the list of fees chargeable 
by the Health and Safety Executive for Northern Ireland to recover costs. Uh, Stuart, you're not muted if you want to hit mute. Mm -hmm. Please, please be just saying. Yes. He's with another. <laughs> These are talking to no. me. <laughs> You're mad. Um, so the purpose of the rule is to amend the list of fees chargeable by the Health and Safety Executive to recover costs from industry in connection with work carried out under the directly acting EU Biocides Regulation EU number 528 2012. The amendments are necessary in order for Northern Ireland to maintain alignment with the biocidal products regulations as required by the protocol. The rule came into operation on the 31st of December. This is the committee's opportunity to consider the policy set out in the SL1 as it's not possible to amend the rule once it has been laid in the Assembly Business Office. Are members content with the policy direction? Agreed. Okay. So um, S number nine then is SR 2020-330, the Health and Safety um, Amendments and Revocation. EU exit regulations NI 2020 at page 91 of your pack is the clerk's memo. At page 93 is the SR 2020-330, the Health and Safety Amendments and Revocation EU exit regulations NI 2020. This statutory rule ensures that the European Union-derived health and safety protections will continue to be available under domestic law following the um, UK withdrawal from the EU. The rule does not make any policy changes beyond the intent of ensuring continued operability of relevant legislation and will ensure the statute book operates properly following IP completion day at the end of the transition period. This rule also came into operation on the 31st of December and it's subject to negative resolution. So if members are content with the SR, we'll put the question. Great. That the Committee for the Economy has considered the SR 2020-330, the Health and Safety Amendments and Revocation EU Exit Regulations Northern Ireland 2020 and has no objection to the rule subject to the Examiner Statutory Rules Report. Um, item number 10 then is SR 2020-331, the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020 Coronavirus Amendment of Relevant Period for Meeting of Registered Societies and Credit Unions Number 2, Regulations NI 2020. There is a clerk's memo at page 108 of your pack and the SR at page 110. So these regulations amend the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act by extending the temporary relevant period for mutual societies um, to hold meetings in a flexible manner. These regulations substitute the end date of 30th of December 2020 for a new date of the 29th of March 2021. So the rule came into operation on the 30th of December. It is subject to confirmatory resolution and our members of content will put the question. So the Committee for the Economy has considered the SR 2020-331, the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, Coronavirus Amendment, relevant period for meetings of registered societies and credit unions, number two, Regulations Northern Ireland 2020, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly subject to the Examiner Statutory Rules Report. Um, item number 11, then, is the Northern Regional College Annual Report and Accounts for the year ended 31st of July 2020. Page 116 um, of your pack is the annual report. The CNAG has indicated he's content with the report and accounts, so it's to note unless there's any comments to be made. Thank you. Great. Um, item number 12 then, Belfast Metropolitan College annual report and accounts for the year ending um, 31st of July 2020. The report is at page 171 of your pack. The CNAG has indicated he's content with the report and accounts, so again, it's to note unless there's any comments. Agreed. 
Um, item number 13, Tourism NI's annual report and accounts 2019-20. Um, the report is at page 253 of your pack. There was um, a 5.3 million overnight trips taken um, in the north in 2019, generating a spend of 1 billion. This equates to overnight visitors spending on average 2.9 million per day. Visitors from Britain and other overseas um, uh, areas generated 589 million. The north uh, realised significant growth of almost a one third in spend from the south, um, which reached 142 million in 2019. Um, 2019 tourism employee figures show an increase of 9% of 6,000 um, on 2017 from 64,856 to 70,802. The net expenditure after interest for the year is 23.6 million. Um, the CNAG has indicated he's content with the report and accounts, so it's to note unless members have any um, comments. Okay, moving on then to correspondence, 4.1, page 352 of your pack, there's correspondence from the Minister um, on the UK internal market legislative consent motion. Um, obviously, it's not being brought. <laughs> it's kind of... It's been and gone now. So it's to note unless there's any comments. Great. Page 354 then, there's correspondence from the Minister in relation to vocational qualifications for 2020-21. The Minister stated that in the prevailing months through stakeholder engagement, it has been clear that despite the best efforts of vocational providers, they continue to face significant challenges to deliver vocational education to students. This is primarily due to local lockdowns and the ongoing impact on teaching, learning, assessment and workplaces, particularly in those sectors that have been most acutely affected by the lockdown measures. The department has been continued to front the executive's response to manage the impact of the pandemic on vocational education. So it's to note unless members have any comments to make, and obviously we've already discussed the issues at length. Good. Great. Page 356, there's correspondence from the Minister um, on the judicial review of employment and health and safety law. So it's to note unless there's any comments. Great. 14.4 then, page 358, there's correspondence from the Minister on DFE's ongoing activity to prepare businesses for the end of the transition period. And no less members of any comments. Um, 14.5 then, 360, correspondence from the Department on the identification of national crisis scenario as designated in the Risk Preparedness Regulations EU 2019-941. This regulation sets out a common framework of rules on how to prevent, prepare for and manage electricity crises. It specifies for a common approach to electricity crisis prevention and management requiring that member states use the same methods and definitions to identify risks relating to the security of electricity supply. So it's to note unless there's any comments. Chair, just on, um, in relation to the new um, Jenny Piper, <laughs> new, yes. the new... John French, yes. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't believe we've had Mr French in since he took up the new role. I appreciate it's not going on. Is it worthwhile down the line? I think at the end of November. Yeah. And we do have, a, we have a, 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 an intention to schedule and we have communicated with yeah. um, utility regulator on that basis and we are looking to get him in. Yeah. Um, it's just finding... When? Yeah, I appreciate that. As long as it's just on the it's on the radar. I think it's worth at this point flagging up again to members that um, we'd sent out a a paper previously, but just to flag up again that that was not the Sony governance. Uh -huh. Um, it was just the the price 
um, regulation around Sony, so uh, the governance um, report still hasn't come through yet. So we're still we were kind of waiting for that. Yeah. Um, to bring in the the regulator as well. So we'll, we'll see where that's at. Um, hopefully it's sooner rather than later. Okay. Uh, 14.7 then, page 542. This correspondence from the Committee for Justice in relation to the SL1 Postal Administration. The Committee for Justice noticed that the insolvency um, service, a branch of DFE, DFE, is responsible for insolvency policy. However, the Department for Justice has responsibility under Article 359 of the Insolvency NA Order 1989 for making rules regarding insolvency procedure with the concurrence of DFE. So if members are agreed, we will forward the correspondence to the department for an urgent view. Agreed. Okay, 14.8 then, page three, on, sorry, 547, sorry. <laughs> correspondence from the ERA committee regarding youth climate action NA. The committee asked that the the DERA committee asks that our committee writes to the department to speak a meeting between relevant officials and um, the Youth Climate Action Group to discuss climate change. So are members content that we would write Agreed. to the department? Yes. Um, 14.9 then, page 560, there's correspondence from the Scottish Parliament Committee for Economy, Energy and Fair Work regarding the Shared Prosperity Fund. Um, obviously we've discussed yeah. similar previously, so members are content to note. Agreed. Um, page 562, then there's correspondence from the Treasury to the House of Lords um, on the EU proposal for a regulation to establish a single EU window environment for customs. The executive has indicated that it has no objection to the proposal, so it's to note unless members have any um, comments. 14.11, then there is CBI feedback from members on Brexit and COVID. Um, the organisation has indicated that it will continue to for, for, forward any further updates. Um, it was a useful overview of some of the issues that have been raised um, and obviously we're going to be seeking some more feedback and briefings from yep. business organisations. And also yeah. be involved in our um, skills micro-inquiry as well. Okay. Uh, 14.12 then, page 569, this pivotal report um, on new decade, new approach, one year on. So it's to note, unless members have any comments. Sorry, Chair, can I just come in there? Um, I think because <laughs> we and our supply chains and um, smooth growing, would it not be Yeah, Chair, we're, we're looking to follow that one up. Um, we've already been in touch with officials around um, further update briefing um, as to where we find ourselves. Members will recall that we, we hadn't completed the statute book and so on. And it also feeds into what members were talking before about grace periods, implementation periods and so on. So, yeah, we'll be getting um, the officials in. We're also going to be talking to stakeholders as to you know where the gaps are now that we need to be... Um, specifically targeting work on. So yeah, we, we gather all that up, uh, Chair and Tech, that forward. Okay. Thanks. Um, so then there, 
Page 579 is an invitation from Policy Forum NI for, for myself to chair an upcoming conference on energy policy. So, if members are agreed for that. Yeah, agreed. Um, page 582, there's a statement from the Office of Northern Ireland Commissioner for Children and Young People um, on children's rights. So, it's to note unless there's any comments. Agreed. Um, page 583, then there's correspondence from an individual um, on business support schemes. So if members are content, we'll forward that correspondence to the department. Chair, yes. Just brought up. Thanks to uh, Peter for including that on the agenda and yourself. Uh, it is an individual that has been in constant contact with me. He, you can see there briefly, he is a golf professional at, at Royal Belfast Golf Club, but has no financial support to date. Is very frustrated with the whole system, and we appreciate this is a forum that we can bring it. I think it's important we we raise individual cases like this, and um, he, you can see there that the problems. He doesn't pay any rent. He doesn't pay any rates, so he hasn't missed out on the grants to date. So uh, we'd appreciate if this is referred to the, the the minister's office for consideration. Thanks, chair. Thanks, Chair. I thank Gordon for raising that. But it's a common theme among um, golf professionals and others that are in those niche professions that just haven't to be because mm. the circumstances been able to avail of anything. Um, but on the sporting front, I think it's an opportunity to raise it. Um, like all of us, I've been contacted by virtually every sports club in the country who have been who are businesses in their own right, run by volunteers, profitable businesses that are reinvested into the community and the sports club, but have been told under the current rules of LRSS that they are the only part of those businesses forced to lockdown that are unable to ex access that grant and are being directed towards the Sports Sustainability Fund, which was established whenever sports stadiums were forced not to have spectators. That was a clear area for that source of funding. Um, is there anything we can do as a committee to, to send representation to LPS or the Department of Finance to raise this issue to say that sports clubs, members clubs that have been forced to close, who have bar and restaurant facilities that are unable to open should be entitled to the same grant support as every other business. Because yes, they're not for profit, but they make a profit and reinvest it in our communities and in our sports clubs. And when we talk about the impacts on mental health long term, without support, these clubs are going to go to the wall. Mm. They run on a, a really slim margin as it is. And I just don't see why they are being made to be different from every other business and every other sector. I think the same situation um, pertains to the whole scheme. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so perhaps if we've gone ahead... No, no, Chair, it was just a comment on that point, and I, and I completely agree. And I, it goes back to the communication point as well, in that a lot of uh, these sports clubs are angry uh, at the fact that, uh, despite paying rates, despite paying bills, similar to many other uh, businesses, they're not able to apply for uh, the schemes. And uh, the, the, the localised restriction scheme is the particular one that's causing them a lot of concern. And I would agree. I think that there needs to be an action from this committee to put pressure on uh, to try and get access to that support. Uh, I know that the uh, Minister for Communities is up in the Chamber on Tuesday and I hope to take up the issue around the Sports Sustainability Fund uh, and in terms of the, the challenges there, but I think that those uh, members or those uh, sports clubs with bar facilities and who rely on that to keep the entire operation afloat, I think it's unfair that those are not able to access it. And I share the point as well about the wet pubs. I think that we need to communicate there again uh, that many of the sports clubs who have bar facilities are paying the same overheads mm -hmm. but not able to access 
uh, the wet pub uh, support. So I, I, I would completely support, and I think it's unanimous in terms of uh, writing off to whatever relevant investors we can try and get back. We write to. Um, yeah. I'm just so there's an overarching thing. Right, right to the right to the executive. Yeah. yeah. So that they have that on their radar. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. Um, fourteen point sixteen then, page five hundred eighty-four. There is a report from the Children's Law Centre informing the UEN Committee on the rights of child's list of issues prior to reporting. So again, it's to note for now, unless members have any comments. Um, page 741, the Assembly Committee report by ISNI, so it's to note, unless members have any comments. Read. Page 745, the 17th report of the Examiner Statutory Rules 2020-21, to um, note. Read. Um, 14.19, at page 44 of your table papers, this correspondence from John Dowd in relation to his proposed small-scale green energy bill, so it's for members to note at this stage. Unless John wants to say anything in relation to his bill. It looks like an election flyer to me. <laughs> 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 yeah, um, no, no, not that. Tomorrow's call my Thanks, John. Um, Fourteen twenty. Then at page forty-five of table papers, there's correspondence from the the Wee Playhouse in regards to funding for the soft play industry. So if members are content, we'll forward that to the economy and finance ministers. Yeah. Okay. So item number 15 then is our forward work programme, which changes. Um. It's already wrong, Chair. Um, we, we've lost um, frameworks because we're not there yet. We, we thought we would be by now. Um, we would have detail on those, but that hasn't happened. So the, the department's essentially waiting for the detail on the common frameworks to come through so that they can brief us. So what, what I'm going to try and do is we've got our um, we've got a raise briefing organised for a closed session next week around um, underpinning economic principles. So it's trying to sort of relate how that works with all of the schemes we have, rebuilding the economy and so on. I guess really to draw together what we've discovered from each of the, the micro inquiries plus what we're being told more generally from stakeholders. And then we're... Um, the week after the 27th is our short day, but we've we've got a new exit in for that. We've folded the new issues that have come today. Um, I think we're, we're postponing Project Stratum. There's been an issue around that. I think that's going to fall further in. Um, but that, because we only have this short slot for that, probably EU exit will be plenty. Okay. Um, I think. Okay, so members oh, can... Oh, I may have something I can add on that. Um, see, the, see the beauty of up-to-minute... <laughs> Oh, sorry, the ESF is, is delayed now as well. We'll work on that, Chair. Okay. We'll work on that. We try and, we try and sort out something else instead. Um, but a, a lot of it is, is just waiting for um, the likes of the common frameworks to come through. Okay. So then... Okay, so any other business? I've heard nothing. Nothing. Chair. Um... And then moving on to item number 17, which is the date, time and place of our next meeting. Um, we have an informal meeting tomorrow at 11am with um, Dr Neil Comer from Ulster University um, in relation to the threat to part-time courses. Um, then we have our next committee meeting um, next week in room 30. Still this room, this yeah, room. Week after, Okay, so that's awesome.
Time's up, meeting tomorrow, Chair. 11. 11. 11 nuts on tea. So we've separated the invitation already. Probably in the diary. Even if you've not accepted it, it'll be there in shadow. Right. Okay. Touching key. Just thinking if there 